Let me tell you why this matters so much to me and why I've hired a number of highly respected scholars to review the Passion Translation and then made their work, their papers, and their interviews available for free online. The Passion Translation is a bad translation. It is not even proper to call it a translation. It has more issues than I can count. It pushes sectarian theology and puts ideas into the Bible that just aren't there to start with. It's primarily the work of one man, a guy named Brian Simmons, who doesn't seem to have the proper education or skills to be able to translate the entire Bible well. But Brian Simmons claims that God has supernaturally given him the spirit of revelation and given him secrets of Hebrew and Greek that he has put into his Passion Bible. Now, normally weird and bad translations don't really make it into your shelf at home or into the bookstores or certainly aren't recommended from pulpits normally. But because of the reckless and unwise endorsing of the Passion Translation by some high-profile, hyper-charismatic pastors, that's exactly what's happening. I thought something has to be done about this. So I made a number of videos exposing the Passion Translation, trying to share why I think this is a bad translation, even though I like the ESV and the NASB and the New King James Version. I like the King James Version. I mean, I like most of the available translations we have nowadays, but no, not this one. Still, even with the videos and the reviews I had done, some people questioned my motives or some people wondered if maybe it's kind of like a Mike Winger versus Brian Simmons, you know, who do I believe situation. So I hired a bunch of scholars to review the Passion Translation and present their work to you so you could have an academic and as unbiased as possible review of the work. That is what I've called my Passion Project. And this is I, honestly, this is one of the best videos we're going to have in the Passion Project. Alex Hewitson has written probably one of the best papers we've had so far. It's so accessible and it really breaks things down in a way that I think everyone can totally comprehend and follow. Alex gives lots of good examples and he backs this up with research and footnotes that you can check for yourself. Now, most of the scholars I've hired have been really sort of well-known and highly respected people who have a long list of scholarly works behind them in their CV. But Alex is actually a student still. He's getting his Master's of Divinity at Westminster Seminary here in California. Alex's work is solid, but since he doesn't have the same credentials that pretty much everybody has had who's been part of this project, we've asked Dr. Brad Bittner to peer review Alex's work and then to join in on the interview which you're about to watch. Dr. Brad Bittner is the Associate Professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary in California. He has his PhD in New Testament and Early Christianity. You can actually look at his academia page down below where you can find some of his work. I've got tons of links down there you're going to want to check out. I think that Alex's work, being the work of a student still reviewed by a legitimate scholar is evidence that even a student who's careful and thoughtful in their work can easily disprove the claims being made by Brian Simmons about the Passion Translation. The church needs to be warned about this wildly popular and very wildly weird Bible translation. In my opinion, this is a fraud that has been perpetrated on the people of God and it's making one man very rich and famous while changing God's word so much that it's becoming the word of Brian Simmons. But I'm not just going to make claims here. My passion project is meant to prove it. And there's links below to all of the interviews and all of the papers that we've done in the passion project, including the paper that we're about to look at right now, written by Alex Hewitson and peer reviewed by Dr. Brad Bittner. It's available for free in a link below. Also, there's timestamps. You should see chapters on this video and timestamps in the description and in the first comment. The goal of that is to help you just kind of navigate to the things that you find most important and most relevant for your understanding. And I personally ask, that if you're interested in this project and what I'm doing and you want to help me spread the word that you consider liking and sharing out this video to other people so that we can get information out there about this translation and its many, many problems. Alex, me and you go back a little bit, a little ways. And uh, Dr. Bittner, you've recently jumped on to do the peer reviewing of all the work that Alex has done trying to review the Passion Translation. And I just want to thank both of you so much 
like sincerely, sincerely, thank you for being part of this project. It's something I care a lot about. And I think, I, I know Alex cares a lot about it. I think Dr. Bittner, you, you, you're the back and forth we've had exhibits that you also have a heart, not just about this translation, but about the people uh, who are being influenced by the word of God as it goes out. And so let's just start at the beginning. Um, why did you guys agree to do this project? What do you see as the most important reason to be part of it? Well, Mark, you know, we've, we've been in touch for a while now. I, I, where I come from in South Africa, I've been exposed to uh, the translate, uh, Passion Translation a bit, and so I just getting an understanding of how wide-reaching the effects have been, globally speaking, uh, and my love and passion for God's Word, I just really felt that it was important to be part of something that would look, look after guarding its integrity. Yeah, I feel like you're echoing my, my whole reason for doing the ridiculous amount of work it is to get, get all these all these people together and do all the reviews of the Passion Translation, so thank you. And uh, Dr. Bittner, what got you involved? It's really down to Alex. Um, Alex came to me, he's in my pastoral, sorry, my, my Pauline Epistles class. So Alex is part of the Pauline Epistles class this semester, and uh, of course in, in that we are working our way through and got to a book like Colossians, and early on he saw that coming and so stopped in and asked me if I'd heard about this Passion Translation. I hadn't by name, as it turned out, but as he described what it was to me, I realized that I had talked to some people who had been influenced by it in the past and uh, realized that if I had known about it, I would have been able to help them in, in better ways. So I'm, I also am passionate about getting good translations of God's powerful word in people's hands and helping them to be able to discern what's good and what's less good. Yeah. Well, amen. That's, that, that's exactly why this project's happening is because so many people, it's like that in this, it's as though in the scholarly world, the passion translation flew under the radar for the most part, but it's wildly popular among certain, I would say, hyper charismatic groups in particular, where it's just flying off the shelves, millions and millions of copies so far, <laughs> and it's ramping up, it seems. So um, at least Facebook keeps trying to sell me more, <laughs> more of the same ones. So what was your approach, Alex, to, um, to reviewing Colossians in the Passion Translation? So my, my thought was, let me translate Colossians from scratch, uh, not, not for publication as, as, a, as a sole Bible, but just for the purposes of the review. So I worked through uh, every verse of the whole of the book, uh, working through and, then, and taking notes on major grammatical features, certain theological themes, and how, and comparing it to what Simmons did in his translation, and then aggregating all of that data, and that's what you'll be able to see in the paper that, that, that you'll put up, uh, is, is just a condensation of all of those observations. And I really thought the way, best way to do it would be translate the whole thing. Yeah, and I, I want the audience to know that um, what, what Alex has done is probably put more time into his paper than anybody else has. Not That's... A, a, a brag on Alex more than anything else. It's not a slight. Other guys did the job, but Alex actually made his own translation of the entire book of Colossians just as a tool for his own research and his use of uh, of going through the Passion Translation. So I'm grateful for that. I, I think the end result is this is probably the most functionally useful of all the papers we've had in the Passion Project so far. I think it's really going to just connect with people and really make things obvious to them that, that need to be obvious because I'm making wild claims, okay? I'm saying things, Brian Simmons is making wild claims. 
Brian Simmons is saying things. He's claiming that God spoke to him, that God gave him special supernatural revelation, secrets of Hebrew and Greek. He's unlocking the Bible for us in special and new ways. It's going to bring revival. It wasn't a dream. It was a wonderful encounter that I had two in the morning in uh, upstairs bedroom where the one I love came and, and gave me this commission to do the translation process. He breathed on me so that I would do the project, and I felt downloads coming instantly. I received downloads. It was like I got a chip put inside of me. I got a connection inside of me to hear him better, to understand the scriptures better, and hopefully to translate. He promised that he would give me new understanding and new fresh revelation from his word. And immediately he gave me a download. Immediately I began to receive a supernatural download of insight and revelation that has continued to this day. I had a visitation and I was given the commission by the Lord as he breathed on me and released me and called me to translate the Bible. I discovered and uncovered so many mysteries and glory realms in the book of Psalms. It will take your breath away. I believe God gave me the key to the book of Proverbs. The Lord showed me it's the homonymic uh, structure of Hebrew is going to be the key to understanding Revelation in the last days, including the book of Revelation, which you haven't got yet, honestly. I'm mega understating it. God really helped me do this translation. He promised that he would uh, give me secrets that had not been disclosed. The secrets of the Lord. He's beginning to share them with me, and I'd like to share them with you. I've made some discoveries, and I don't know who to talk to. I mean, I'm finding out all these secrets, and I'm translating, and going, oh. Every time I open the Bible, I get fresh insight. I, I, it speaks to me. It goes beyond the mind. I, I get uh, dreams and, and revelation from, from the Lord that is clear and uh, prophetic. So uh, I think, Sid, I believe I got baptized in the spirit of revelation in that library room of heaven and he's revealing himself in this hour like never before the word of god is coming alive to us it's like we're getting a brand new bible isn't it and i'm suggesting that these things aren't true and what the work you're doing is putting uh the scholarship and putting the facts and the data and the evidence behind all of these things and i just i'm really grateful for that so um, to get some perspective, though, on how we should look at the Passion Translation overall for those who want to hear an informed view on this, can you briefly explain the different types of translation varieties that exist currently in the church? Sure, I can speak to that. Um, we, we are really blessed in our day and age to have lots of great options out there uh, in English translation and across other languages, but most of those would fall on a spectrum. So you've got on the one end... Uh, very literal translations, and on the other end, what really aren't translations anymore, they would be called paraphrases, or almost deserve to be called commentary. And uh, some people might have heard, uh, for example, that the New International Version falls somewhere in the middle of that spectrum as a dynamic equivalent translation. That is, they're looking at the words in the original languages, but trying to bring the sense across, not just word for word or phrase for phrase, but in a way that maybe uses some of the idioms, the ways of everyday speaking in the, in the target language. Uh, and uh, another translation, maybe like the ESV, which some people use, would be slightly more literal. Uh, the NASB, very, very literal, because they're taking it word for word and uh, leaving the interpretation then up to the reader and 
uh, the one who's doing some Bible study, rather than doing that interpretation for the reader. So, okay, on that on that spectrum, on this sort of sort of like, and you could view it as a spectrum. You could kind of like label translations and put them in different sort of places approximately on a spectrum there. Where would you put the passion translation so people can understand what kind of thing we're dealing with here? Yeah, I think I think it's a misnomer, to be honest, to call it a translation. It's uh, we'll get into this perhaps with Alex's good work on Colossians, but it's it's all the way to this end of a paraphrase. So something like the message, which has been helpful to a lot of people in recent decades, uh, is a paraphrase. Uh, but I think the Passion Translation goes even beyond that at many points, and it's really a commentary on the text rather than translation in several places. That has been something I've heard consistently from almost everyone who works in the project. They go, this isn't, this isn't a translation. Uh, one scholar did his first draft review of the, of the work, and I had to message him back and say, you, uh, you, you, you did the review of a paraphrase, but he says it's a translation. And in his work, he's going on to say, look, it's not only is it not a translation, it's not even properly a paraphrase. You have to, you have to sort of add extra, extra words. It's, it's interpretive. Or uh, I think it was Trumper Longman who said it was a highly, highly, highly interpretive paraphrase. That it's uh, like a targum was what he related it to. Would you agree with that assessment? Absolutely, I think that's right. In some ways, uh, I wish I wish Brian Simmons had had uh, reserved a lot of what he puts in the so-called translation for marginal notes. You know, if you wanted to have a study Bible, for instance, with some commentary or some notes in the margins or at the bottom of the page, I think that would have been a much more appropriate way to go uh, rather than calling it a translation and acting as though these are the the words in the original text. Yeah. Now, help our, our audience, anybody who might be watching, who's going to look at this review, and they don't really know you gentlemen, and they're like thinking, so are these guys just critical of lots of translations? Like, is that their goal is just to tear down the word of God? Like, where are you coming from here? What's your attitude towards translations, even paraphrases in general? I'd say in, I, we, we're coming at this from the angle of, of people who have a tremendous love for the Word of God, and uh, I, I want to. I'm very, very careful to ever say anything publicly in criticism of translations because most of our good English translations are done by teams of really large teams of truly excellent uh, scholars across the world, different cultures, uh, different uh, backgrounds and training, but all highly qualified, and they de and they dedicate years and years and years of careful study. That, that bring to the table to make these translations. And so uh, the, the act of translating itself is a, a real challenge. And so these people who have thought very carefully about uh, translation for decades have done so for a reason. And so we don't want to undermine people's confidence in the Word of God in any way. The English translations that we have are highly reliable, really good quality. We, of course, may have uh, some differences here and there about how we might approach things. But that's not the same as saying we're critical of other translations. As uh, Dr. Bittnerati said, this isn't really a translation, which is why it deserves the level of criticism that I, that I think it should. Yeah, thank you for making that clear. And I'm so in agreement with that. My own studies into translations, I, you know, I was raised up in sort of a King James only-ish kind of influenced environment. And when I started doing my own real work on this and study on this, I was relieved to find out we have so many good and faithful translations and that I could pick up the ESV and the NASB and I could, I could, I could read the NIV even, believe it or not. <laughs> and, um, and to know that all these are, I would consider these generally reliable, good translations. And 
yeah, the passion translation is in a different category altogether. And it's encouraging for people to realize that this is not undermining anything except for just sharpening our ability to just hone in on good translations and discern them from other things. And so the passion translation, though, um, it claims things, you know, the publisher's website, Brian Simmons, he goes around claiming lots of things about the translation. And one of the things that they claim as far as translation strategy, and I'll, I'll quote it now, this is their claim, they say, the passion translation's philosophy is that the meaning of God's original message to the world has priority over its exact form, which is why our goal is to communicate the meaning of scripture as clearly and naturally as possible in modern English. Brian and other reviewers have sought to remain faithful to the original biblical languages by preserving their literal meaning, yet flexible enough to convey God's original message in a way a modern English in the way modern English speakers can understand. It's a balanced translation that tries to hold both the word's literal meaning and original message in proper tension, resulting in an entirely new, fiery, fresh translation of God's word. Now, that, those seem, and in your paper you say, these are kind of standard, for the most part, standard types of aims and goals, but your statement in your paper is Simmons does not adhere to the stated translation strategy. Could you explain that? Yeah, I think what you see, if that was the case, is his translation might have some differences in, in different expressions that he uses and so on, but the overall product would be comparable to other English translations, right, if, if he was really following through on what he's talking about. But his translation is so radically different from all the other work that's been done by scholars over centuries and the last couple of decades in particular, producing a lot of our versions. That really shows you that what he's doing isn't translating. And I think another way you could think about this is if we took, let's say, the ESV and the NIV and the NASB and some others, and we translated it back into Greek, like we did that as a project, right, and compared those, there would be some, there would be differences, but you'd be able to get a sense of the real similarity in, in the end result. If you took the Passion Translation, Simmons' work, and translated that back into Greek, and then compared those two translations of Greek, they would be unrecognizable uh, for the most part. And that just shows you that what he's doing isn't really translating at all. Yeah, yeah, wow. So I like that analogy. I think it's something I can grab onto real easy. Yeah, when you, you go from Greek into English, well, when you go from that same English back into Greek and it's completely different <laughs> than the Greek you started with, something happened along the way that wasn't, wasn't a good idea. So Simmons has made some really big claims. Um, and we're gonna talk a little bit here now about these claims the publisher makes open public claims that they've made. Um, he's made claims about the source text of his translation, some of these claims. Now these claims I think go right over the head of average people, uh, not because people are unintelligent, they're intelligent, they're just not experienced with this area. And so he likes to say that he's getting at these like important source texts, he'll call them the Aramaic. He's getting the Aramaic. We're also incorporating some Aramaic, which is always like, it befuddles the scholars why I've done this. 90% of the biblical problems you have with understanding the text of the Bible, 90% of them disappear with the Aramaic text. Now, as you're going back to, as you said, the Aramaic and the, the Greek that way, did you have concern that there may be some scholars who look at this and, and may not uh, agree with the basic premise? But we're bridging the Aramaic text with the Greek text. It's going to be uh, eye-popping. It's going to look different, feel different, sound different. And I, I welcome and anticipate a lot of scholars bringing their review and bringing their comments to us. His footnotes are just chock full. In fact, in Colossians, 23 times he references the Aramaic in just four chapters 
of Colossians in his footnotes 23 times. Can you walk us through this issue? Can you explain like what is going on with his claims about Aramaic? Um, what is it he's claiming about the source texts? And then this is what in your paper you say is, quote, one of the most problematic areas of Simmons' translation. I think that's exactly right. If I can jump in, maybe Alex will want to clarify it. But, and, and, and just to be clear, I, I, you, know, you read earlier the, uh, the aims of the translation committee, so-called, uh, in publishing this. And I resonate with so many of those. We want to have the Bible in people's hands. We want to have God's Word as accurately and understandably as possible, going out to as many people as possible. Uh, but to, to call this a translation and then to claim further that you're working on the basis of uh, obscure and um, in some ways uh, hidden texts that people haven't seen before just isn't the case. And so when, when Alex first put this in front of me and uh, and I looked at Colossians as an example, and how many times, as you say, he, he says he's working from the Aramaic text, I, I had to just stop and, and ask myself, what's he talking about? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even know what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, now, you're not alone in that. I just want the listeners to know what Dr. Bittner says. I got from scholar after scholar. I think it was um, Dr. Blomberg who reached out to me and, and just said, I'm, I'm not able to write this review yet, when he says Aramaic, what is he even talking about? Like, I don't know what he means when he says Aramaic texts. And it's because the claims that he's making were so strange and novel to the guys who actually do this kind of work that that should raise alarms to all of us. So uh, let me just really quick to lay this out for our listeners. The Brian Simmons in the Passion Translation claims that he's getting new insights into the Word of God, and he's doing it through finding Aramaic texts. And he says Jesus spoke Aramaic, the Apostle spoke Aramaic, and he even claims, and we'll, I'll ask you about this in a minute, he even claims that scholarship has recently discovered that all or almost all of our New Testament was originally written in Aramaic, and it's causing them to run to the dusty corners of their libraries to pull out the Aramaic texts. But what, what you're saying is, there is no Aramaic text. Is that right? Well, if I want to be, and I do want to be as charitable as possible, um, I think what he's talking about uh, when he says Aramaic are Syriac texts. Uh, so Syriac is an ancient language that is also known as Eastern Aramaic sometimes, or Middle Aramaic. Uh, and we do have some Syriac translations of the New Testament, which date from the second through to the seventh centuries. And I just want to emphasize that. These are not texts which predate or which are of better quality than the Greek manuscripts that we have. But they've been known of for quite a while, and there are people who specialize in Syriac texts and textual criticism, which is just the scholarly way of talking about how do we take all the ancient evidence and put it together so that we've got the best possible, most original text that we can have uh, to work from when we translate into English. So I think that maybe is what he's referring to. But even so, uh, the, it, it's not as if there exists, uh, for Colossians, say, uh, our topic today, uh, an Aramaic translation of Colossians that I can pull off of any dusty shelf in this in this room. It just isn't there. So, uh, so I, 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 I'm afraid I can't get around the fact that he seems to be making this up. And it, uh, it, it, uh, there, can I say two things about that? Sorry, one please, is scholarly, one is, 
one is more pastoral. I, I spent some time as a pastor when I first finished seminary, and I'll start with the pastoral comment. Uh, I there was a woman who came up to me uh, when I was when I had a, a a job as a shopkeeper several years back, and I had already done some study of the New Testament. I'd already learned Greek and Hebrew, and she knew that, and uh, she knew that I I loved. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I wanted to um, see people understanding God's Word and understand the Gospel. And so she asked me, had I heard about these new Aramaic texts, which were providing us with a new translation? And she didn't share any names with me, and at the time I wasn't aware of this Passion Translation, but I'm almost certain this is what she was talking about. Uh, and, uh, and, and I said to her, I, I don't think you're getting good information because that's just not out there. I've done a lot of work with ancient documents and this sounds really suspicious to me. And, and yet she was so enticed by it that she was listening to everything she was being told by people who were touting this as God's word most clearly communicated to her. And, and that really bothered me as, as a former pastor because I knew there were things that she was telling me. I didn't know the source text uh, was the Passion Translation, but I knew there were things she was telling me that were wrong. So I, you can tell I'm a little bit animated about this because I think it really affects people negatively. Yeah. From, sorry, from a, from a scholarly standpoint, I mean, once you call yourself a translation or a translation committee with reviewers, uh, although although you may be a brother or sister in Christ, and I want to I want to respect you and and show you love and and be as generous as I can. You've entered the realm of scholarly discussion or scholarly debate at that point. And, and so all of our claims as scholars about the text or manuscripts are, are and should be subject to very tight academic scrutiny. And as we look at this from a scholarly perspective, there's nothing, there's nothing behind the curtain. There's, uh, I'm afraid if you pull the curtain back and there's just nothing there. So I, I'm left with this impression that when, when Brian Simmons wants to expansively comment on the biblical text, it seems as though at those points he's, he's claiming he has an Aramaic original, which might be a Syriac original, but I have not been able to find any of those. Yeah, and when you say Syriac original, like, it, tell, you know, please correct, I'm going to put this in my own words. You're not saying, I don't think, um, you're not saying we have some sort of original writing from the apostles that was in Syriac. Rather, the New Testament writings were translated into a, a language sort of similar to Jesus's language, but different, not quite Jesus's Aramaic, but a different language or a similar language. It's a Syriac Aramaic type thing. And that's from the Greek over to a different language. And he's treating it as though it were the original so that he can kind of get like a more authentic reading of the Bible. At least that's the impression normal people get. Oh, he's, he's getting the real truth. Like, we're getting the real reading from Jesus. So let me be, I'll try to be really crystal clear. That's exactly what I'm trying to say, is that even if there are Syriac texts, uh, which he's calling Aramaic, yeah. those are much later texts than the New Testament. They're translations, and an expert like Pete Williams, who is at Cambridge in Tyndall House, has written about this and says there's a trajectory whereby the earlier the Syriac translation, actually the less the less good quality it is. They become more literal over time in general, so that if you have a seventh century text as a translation into Syriac, it's going to be a little bit more faithful. But 
that might mean, as you can see, that we've got late, quite late texts, which are translations of the Greek original texts that we're now somehow magically calling original. And, and if I could just add one more note, to argue or to act as though it's it's um, it's just a fact that Jesus spoke Aramaic and these texts would, would have originally been in Aramaic or translated from Aramaic, that's also not that's not a um, a straightforward claim to make. Jesus did not speak Greek; he spoke Aramaic, Galilean Aramaic. So I, I'm someone who works a lot with ancient inscriptions. And we've got a wonderful set of new inscriptions from Judea, from Palestine, from, from the whole region where Jesus and the disciples were living at the same time frame that have just come out in the last 15 years. And more than anything, this has shown us how multilingual Israel was in the first century. And most New Testament scholars, well, all New Testament scholars will tell you that nothing was written in Aramaic that we have access to. Everything was written in Greek. And it was probably first written in Greek. And Jesus was probably also one who knew and spoke Greek. Yes, he probably had Aramaic. Maybe he had Hebrew as well. But we've got all kinds of mounting evidence for the multilingual environment of first century Galilee and Judea. So I, I just want to make sure that people are aware of this so that when they hear someone claim, no, it must have been Aramaic, and now we've got these texts, there's, there are several problems at each yeah. step in that argument. So this is all my alarm bells go off with this because, I mean, I have footage and I'll play it some point in our clip here. I'll play it for the people to hear where Brian says that scholarship has recently uncovered this wonderful fact that the original New Testament documents were almost all written in Aramaic. And he acts as though like the scholarly world just had a, an Aramaic bomb dropped on it and they're all sort of experiencing the aftershock of it. And this is the kind of stuff he'll claim in front of an audience that has no knowledge of these types of things. All of our uh, Bible commentaries and our understanding of the New Testament is based on what is called Greek primacy, which is that the original manuscripts, the original autographs of the New Testament were all written in Greek. Guess what's happened in the last five years? This is really new. Brand new scholarship, just like they discovered things archaeologically that are astounding. They have discovered, and I've, I've read the, the scholarly uh, reports, hundreds and hundreds of examples where it's been proven that the Greek manuscripts are second-gen copies of the original Aramaic New Testament. That Virtually all of the New Testament, there could be some exceptions, but virtually all of the New Testament was originally in Aramaic and then copied into Greek. This causes all the scholars to freak out and go back to the trash can into the dusty corners of their libraries and pull out all the Greek or all the Aramaic manuscripts and realize that they, they had thrown away the, the originals. And this sets him up as kind of, it's, it seems like a scholarly snake oil type thing that's going on here. I, I And I, I'm not trying to put those words in your mouth. I, I tend to be, have stronger words than most scholars do because everybody's always very careful with their terms and I'm, I'm just clumsy sometimes, <laughs> sometimes on purpose. Um, because I just want to make sure it's clear. I just want to make sure it's clear that this is, this is not accurate. So can you respond to that just real quick? Um, is it in fact not true that scholars have recently shifted and all decided that uh, the Aramaic is probably the original behind most of the New Testament. 
That's just not true. In fact, it's bonkers to say that. So if that's clear enough, it's that's just very clear. <laughs> and it, you know, there, as with anything, there are there are shreds of truth in what he's saying, and that in the middle of the 20th century, there were debates about, especially with relation to the Gospels, would we have, uh, would we be able to work backwards from the Greek text that we have to a reconstructed Aramaic text, which might have represented um, the spoken Aramaic that Jesus might have been using. Uh, but that has not been in any, in any way, shape, or form the dominant conclusion of New Testament scholarship, and there have yeah. been no Aramaic bombshells dropped in the last several decades. Okay, because this is, yeah, that's really central to, to, every time you see the word Aramaic in his translation, it seems like this is connected to this type of claim. He, uh, he even has, like, in many of the places he goes and speaks, he says that Jesus' last word on the cross wasn't to telestai. Uh, he didn't, it wasn't to telestai in the Greek, he didn't say that. He said an Aramaic word, and the Aramaic word has a double meaning, because you know he likes to double, triple translate things. So he says in many, many occasions, I've seen him say it probably six different places um, in large gatherings, that what to telestai actually means is it's, it's a double meaning it also means bride and so his final word on the cross was to yell out bride this will change your life I, I mean this you'll never forget this never long as you live you will never forget what i'm going to say in the next two minutes absolutely change you forever have i got your attention and that's not american hype the last word jesus spoke on the cross he did not speak in Greek. What is the last word Jesus spoke on the cross? You've heard me say this, haven't you? Okay, you know what's coming, sweetheart. Oh, this does it change your life? Oh, this will, this will. I just got an email on my. I could show you on my phone. Uh, women's prison is being revivals hitting a women's prison because of what I'm about to share with you. The last word Jesus spoke on the cross, he spoke in Aramaic. The language of Jesus was not Greek. He spoke Aramaic. I'm not going to make the point. You're going to have to search it out, and you, you come to your own conclusion. But uh, Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, Sermon on the Mount. The teachings of Jesus were all in Aramaic, not Greek. All right? So the last word Jesus spoke, a dying man is going to speak from his heart, his heart language. I speak a number of languages, but when I want to speak to my wife or I share my heart, it's English. Jesus spoke Aramaic. The last word on the cross was kala, kala. Kala is an Aramaic homonym, which means finished. But what if for 2,000 years the church has been robbed of uh, what Jesus really said, his dying breath? Kala. If I ask any Hebrew speaker, even to this very day, Aramaic and Hebrew linguistically linked, it's the same in Aramaic or Hebrew. The word kala, do you want to know what it means? Are you sitting down? It's the Hebrew word bride. Bride! Then he gave birth to her. Because from his side came blood and water, mom. Blood and water. He gave birth. And he always tells the crowds the same thing. He goes, when I tell you this, it's going to change your life. You'll never be the same. And uh, I was the same after I heard it. But I, thought, but I thought it was that kind of thing that it's like, what's going on here? This isn't responsible to, to the word of God or the people of God or, or, or to the words of Christ. It just seems not to be.
not at all. And I, I think, you know, I, 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 would, I would try again to be generous and think, how many, how many sermons have I preached or have I heard where I might have said something which is helpful, and maybe even in terms of the whole Bible, the right doctrine, but not what this text was actually communicating. Uh, and I think that's what's going on there. You know, of course, the church is the bride of Christ in the New Testament. But to argue that Tetelestai in any way gets us there is, is not just false linguistically, false according to the manuscript tradition. It's also really damaging because you're suggesting to people that the word of God that we do have, that God has given by his Holy Spirit, through these human authors who wrote in Greek, and he preserved this in his wonderfully kind providence for us in the manuscript tradition, that that's not actually the word of God. And that only if I'm touched by God himself and have access to something nobody else can see, can I tell you what God means. At that point, you become a, a, a renegade prophet, and I think that's really dangerous. But what if, for 2,000 years, the church has been robbed of uh, what Jesus really said. All right, let's continue on the Aramaic path just for a second. <laughs> this, I'm very grateful for all the things you're sharing. You're echoing what's in my heart for sure. So um, uh, one of the things that Brian Simmons likes to claim is that um, Aramaic, in part of this whole like sort of Gnostic kind of secret, secret knowledge thing that he kind of leans on, that Aramaic is like the love language of God and and the Aramaic and the Hebrew, it's in this you get God's love language. And so uh, the implication is that when we when we read translations, unlike the Passion, who aren't leaning heavily on the Aramaic everywhere, that they're missing out on some very valuable elements of God's love, and the Passion is given the name of the of the translation is restoring this but isn't it by its root a very love-filled language it's very emotional oh you know hebrew is pure emotion the poetic language of hebrew and aramaic release something inside of us it, it's it's divine it is full of revelation there's flavor it, it's not it's like thinking with your heart it's like heart level to heart level Spirit to spirit, deep calling out to deep. The romantic, poetic, heart-filled words of God will fill you with new passion and God's revival fire. You will get to know God on a deeper and more intimate level. The very words in this translation will go right past the defenses in your mind and right into your spirit. The Word of God will become so alive in you and you will have a supernatural encounter with the glory and presence of God. Is that true? Is, Aram is Aramaic an inherently more loving language? Is it like God's selective love language? So this is one of the things that uh, really has been a, a problem for me in, in reading this is it's a it's I, I see it as a, a really truly great offense against God and in a, in effect a kind of blasphemy against God to say that he that if effectively it collapses all his attributes all that he is into one thing but the scriptures testify as a whole to many facets of God and I, I, I just wonder what Simmons would do with uh, texts where there is judgment being levied or God's hatred of sin is being expressed. Is this all love language, or is is God is God loving, but is He also holy and is He also just? Now I know Simmons will want to affirm those things, so I'm not trying to misrepresent him here. But I'm saying his claim about being a love language is incompatible with all the information that we have about how this uh, language languages work. 
And the, the claim that Aramaic is recovering a, a love language and the secret heart of God, I think I mentioned to you before, it's somewhat similar to a lot of the Gnostic texts that we have in the in the first centuries, where um, especially second century, you've got texts uh, coming up that will say things like, this is the secret message from so-and-so, or the secret knowledge about X, Y, and Z. And this, that's what essentially seems to be claiming, is that you need to get behind what you've got written in front of you to the real meaning, and that it, it teaches us something about God that was hidden. And I think, again, that in, in a way is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, because we want to affirm that for the last several thousand years, we have had, as Dr. Bittner just said, we have had the Word of God with us, and we've had all that's, that we need to know for life and godliness, for uh, what God is like, what man is like, the nature of sin, the, the salvation that comes to us in Christ, that we have had that. It hasn't been missing for 2,000 years. It was given to us. Uh, through the apostles and by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. So I, I really find that as a, as, a, as a Christian, somebody who loves God's word and, and wants to honor God for who he is and the work of the Holy Spirit, I find it offensive and frankly blasphemous. Well, your paper is organized really well. Um, it's, it's organized sort of with a, rather than a verse structure going in order through Colossians, you go concept wise, you have, you know, several observations, a number of observations you make. And the first observation, we'll, we'll kind of work through a bunch of those right now. The first one that you make is uh, about how long Colossians is in the Passion Translation compared to how long the same book is in other translations. And I'll be able to put this table up on screen for everybody to see, but can you explain what the problem is here? Right. Okay. So one of the one of the inherent challenges with uh, translating is that we don't always have exactly the same kind of uh, word or uh, phrase or idiom or something like that in, in the language that we're translating into, which we call the, the target language. So we're looking at Greek and we're wanting to translate into English. Right? They may not be the same uh, habits of speech and different, different words. So sometimes what we need to do is be slightly expansive. And what I mean by that is we might uh, give a a translation that has a few more words in order to convey the meaning because ultimately in translation we want to have in front of us uh, the meaning of, of what the, the Greek says we want the meaning in English so sometimes that takes a few more words and I think uh, in the in the table there you'll see that uh, counting the the Greek number of words and then counting any English translations number of words there is going to be more words in that English translation because we're changing into another language that works differently but if you compare the, the difference of, uh, between like the uh, ESV, the NIV, the NASB, uh, their percentage by which there's more words in English than there is in Greek is relatively consistent. But when you look at the Passion Translation, uh, so have a look there, 2,919 words to translate Colossians. And the next highest is, uh, is the NASB with 2,122 uh, 122 words. So the Passion Translation is longer than that by nearly 40%. You see how close the number of words in English the rest of the translations get? It's because they, they are communicating a very similar meaning. They all have a good grasp on what the Greek is saying. But Simmons either just doesn't understand how to translate well, so he uses extra words, or he's adding in a lot. And I think it's primarily, it's definitely some of the, the former, but it's primarily that he is adding in a lot, a host of material to his translation. 
I think that's that is such a useful just immediate image to say, okay, wow, that's that's a significant difference. And this is this is in the book of Colossians, but this holds true across the entire translation. There are sections that are much more than 30 or 50% longer in some places like twice as long. Um, there's there's places where one verse that most translations would handle in 17 words, he handles in like 42 words. Um, this this kind of thing happens throughout throughout the work itself, more or less in different books, but always always a lot more than everybody else does in their translations. So that, that's an interesting thing there. How about um, the second observation you make, which is uh, something I thought was really helpful. It's how Simmons inconsistently translates the exact same Greek phrase. Can you explain, I'll put that table up as well. Can you explain like, uh, why is it significant? And, and you've taken, let me just highlight, you've taken phrases in your tables two and three, phrases that Paul tends to use the same phrase in the same context. And yet right. Simmons is handling it in very imaginative ways. So I'll just make a brief note about this. And I think uh, Dr. Bittner has also taken a look at a little bit to, of the introductions uh, that that's, um, Simmons does there. But when Paul writes uh, his letters, uh, depending on who, who he's writing to and what his purpose is, he gives a, uh, the same greeting in Greek. Uh, in, in Table 2, uh, that's um, the same exact Greek words take place in all five of those greetings that I've listed there. Uh, and so if Simmons was translating, he would have the same result for each one of those verses. And I'm not making uh, an assumption that he didn't compare them, but I think from what I've seen him talking about his translation, he did this in, in, in phases. And, he, and uh, as far as I can find uh, from the publication dates, he released them in phases as well, which means that I think he was working on different books at different times. And that for me is an indicator that, that he doesn't really know necessarily what's going on in the Greek there and that he's not translating because those three words are very easy to translate into English. And so you should get exactly the same phrase in all five places. And the same thing with table three. I think that, that shows even more radically how he uses totally different words. Sometimes this is a riches of favor, sometimes grace, and sometimes undeserved favor, releasing grace. Uh, so he adds verbs and now, now this table three, what is that usually translated as? Uh, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. But all of these are examples of how he has very differently translated and and you know, as I mentioned briefly before, but can you account for the differences, these being translated differently by different contexts? Are they put in strange contexts that would cause you to think of different things when reading the same words? Not really. I think Dr. Bittner can speak to this as well, but the nature of what's happening in the introductions to these, uh, in this epistolary uh, literature, these letters, which are epistles, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a greeting. It's a, a common greeting. And uh, context isn't going to change that he's pronouncing grace uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ and peace from God the Father, uh, that's not going to change the meaning of these words. Uh, their meaning stays the same. Yeah, and we'll, we'll return to some of this pretty soon, Royal, in a little bit. Let's talk about observation number three, which is about adding or subtracting various parts of speech. Now, you offer, a, a, to my count here, 43 examples of adding or subtracting different parts of speech that are in Colossians, just in four chapters here. It's a pretty short book. It's a pretty quick read. Well, we can't go through every example. Could you give us just an idea of like what you've found through this? 
Sure, I can speak to some of Alex's conclusions and, and affirm them heartily. All you have to do is look at the first two verses uh, in, in Colossians to realize that not only what we, we were just talking about ways that he inconsistently translates, um, I might add inaccurately translates, these are, um, he, he would not pass a Greek one class if you were translating the phrases in tables two and three in the ways that he's doing. And, and not just because we want to be strict or pedantic, but because it's just not a good translation. So it's, 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 it's that serious to my mind as I look at this. But then you start to realize as you read uh, Passion Translation next to the Greek text that He's just throwing things in, and it's it's a little bit more than a paraphrase. This is why I characterize it as a commentary, uh, and uh, and a very interpretive commentary at that. If you look at if you look at Colossians one, one and two, uh, I'll just read out what he has, if that's all right, and then note a few things. He says, "My name is Paul, and I have I have been chosen by Jesus Christ to be His apostle by the calling and destined purpose of God." My colleague, Timothy, and I send this letter to all the holy believers who have been united to Jesus as beloved followers of the Messiah. May God, our true Father, release upon your lives the riches of his kind favor and heavenly peace. Through the, through, sorry, he goes on, through the Lord Jesus, the anointed one. Uh, and I'm sorry I left that bit out because on my copy, I've, I've made some notes and crossed out things that just aren't there in the Greek. Uh, so, so he's adding entire phrases as well as words. What, uh, what people will see if they're looking at Alex's paper that I know you're going to post uh, in Observation 3 are things like adjectives, the adjective true or heavenly there in verse 2. Uh, if we read on another verse, uh, the verb overflow, isn't, it, it's just not there. But this is incredibly expansive and much more so than you would need to be to make this... Uh, to make this communicate appropriately on the basis of the Greek. So it, it, it really is, I think, an egregious level of addition and change that we're looking at here. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is a huge deal. I mean, we don't, we, we want to trust our translators that they're giving us a faithful representation of what God inspired to be written, not an adaptation and additions and subtractions uh, we, we need to be able to trust these guys. This is why we put them on teams, right? Because it's like trust but verify. You know? <laughs> and, and, um, and this is unfortunately not what's happening with the Passion Translation. So there's 43 examples there that you, everybody can look at. But in observation number four, you talk about radical expansions. Radical expansions. What exactly do you mean, um, Alex, by radical expansions? And can you walk us through some of those? Sure. So the, the difference there between a radical expansion and just adding some verbs and adjectives like we just spoke about there in the third point is that these seem to import whole sentences, uh, large new ideas, not just single words or, or, or phrases. Uh, I, I think the, the best example there is in, in uh, chapter 1 verse 5. You'll see there that it's a one and a half lines to translate it simply into English and it, for him it ends up being almost six lines six lines long, uh, 54 words compared to 26 uh, in, in my translation. And uh, it's it's not complicated Greek, really not complicated Greek. So it's not that the meaning needed to be explained by expanding it a bit. It's just whole extra ideas 
uh, that that which prove that he's bringing in something that he wants to say, as opposed to making clear what's in the text. And I, so I think it's the difference there is, is what is motivating a verse being longer than perhaps you might think it needs to be. Is it because it needs to be made more clear, or is it because you wanted to say something and you took that opportunity in the text? But I think it's I think it's that the latter. Yeah. May I interject something? Please do, Doctor Bitter. And uh, you can you can tell me if it's helpful or not. But I think earlier I mentioned, uh, you know, you. This is not good translation from Greek, even at a first-year Greek level. Now, if that sounds too academic for some people, uh, as if I'm, you know, here's the teacher, the professor being pedantic and, and too strict, let me put it in terms of a different analogy. Uh, if, if we were watching uh, the President of the United States or some kind of diplomat in a room with a, uh, an official from another country in another language, and they couldn't communicate in English, so they have an interpreter there. And if there was a very short and precise and exact and crafted sentence that the president uttered, and then the interpreter goes on and on for a paragraph's worth of, of translation, I can tell you what would happen to that interpreter very quickly. <laughs> he, he or she would be fired because it would be very clear that they're inserting what they want to say in, in unnecessary excess. And, and again, I think that's, what's, that's what we're talking about here in these, in these first several observations. And if we grant, which I think most of, your, you know, most of the people viewing this uh, who love God's word would want to grant, that Paul's the apostle, not Brian Simmons. So, so Brian Simmons' job is to translate Paul as the one who is inspired by the spirit of God. Then the interpreter ought to stick to the apostle's text that was inspired by the spirit and not go crazy and expand it. Yeah, even if you just expand it to make it feel better, land better, to, to add stuff that you think, if only Paul had said it this way, boy, it, people would really connect with it that much more because you're not the inspired author. <laughs> you, are, you are supposed to be a translator, but this is what Brian Simmons says over and over again. So many of the changes he, he gives, like let me read the, the paragraph to, you're mentioning in 1.5. He says, your faith and love rise within you as you access all the treasures of your inheritance stored up for you up in the heavenly realm. For the revelation of the true gospel is as real today as the day you first heard of our glorious hope. Now that you have believed in the truth of the gospel. These are nice sounding phrases. These feel good. But that's not the question. Isn't what Bible feels the best in the most places? <laughs> this is The question is, which one represents the original inspired work that God gave us. So yeah, let's talk about observation number five. And, and this one I thought was interesting. You said it's the use of unusual words, unusual words. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, I, this was a particularly interesting uh, observation for me because I understand maybe his, he has a philosophy that he wants to add in certain verbs and nouns and adjectives to, to be a bit clearer or to say something that he wants to say. But what's different here is when he uses the same uh, word that's not in the text, but multiple times. And for me, that indicates when someone does that in a normal conversation with me, and they keep saying the same word. It's a key to me that they think that this is important and that there's some kind of agenda connected with that. And I, I think that's what we end up seeing here. For example, the idea of uh, revelation, which does not uh, appear seven times, even though it's not in the Greek text. And it's almost with... Uh, the idea behind it is that he wants to say uh, there's something more to know 
than what is just what we're talking about here in the text. And I think that fits with his overall perspective that Aramaic is this recovered love language and, you know, those types of claims. These, uh, also the use of the word uh, Rome, uh, there's, some, there's some ways in which we, we can actually helpfully use this phrase. But based on how I've heard him talk about it in different contexts, he uses that word to mean something a little different to to what you'd find in a, in a Greek lexicon in its usage in the New Testament. So it's a, it's really misleading to use it uh, even uh, in English, even though it, especially though it's not in the Greek. Um, he also uses the word uh, release, which is not actually a scriptural way of talking about how we obtain uh, grace and peace as if there are uh, some substances. Yeah. And that's so, kind of so he'll mention like I'm like releasing forgiveness or releasing grace upon you, right? Like that's the way he adds it in there. Right, and I, I think I made this point somewhere else in the paper. But when I forgive someone, I don't release a mystical substance through the airways to them that now plants forgiveness on them and and restores uh, the atmosphere or something. Rather, I cease to uh, hold them in my in in debt uh, to me for something that they've done us a sin against me. Uh, for example, it's it's an actual action. It's not the release of some substance. And the same thing with uh, God's grace to us. It's not some particle that comes through the air. It's the way in which God acts towards us in Jesus Christ and uh, in giving us his spirit. I think these are really important because they're theologically charged terms. And so as a translator, you, you, you don't want to come with a theological agenda. You just want to be representing what the text says. So that's why I think that's a pretty important observation. Yeah, I, now, this got my attention so much, this observation you made, because this is, uh, you know, it's pervasive. I found this elsewhere. Like he's at, okay, so in, in the hyper-charismatic particular group he's part of. Now, I'm charismatic, so I'm not trying to rip on charismatics at all here. But there are certain buzzwords, right, that... That those who are charismatic tend to use, and hyper-charismatic groups tend to use them even more. Brian Simmons seems to have embedded these buzzwords throughout the text of the Passion Translation. These types of things, uh, release and realm and revelation, and somebody told me who's, who has been part of this movement in the past, they said, I wonder if you put the word portals in there. Portals, because in my group they always talk about portals, so I'm like looking up portals. Yep, there it is. You know, <laughs> It's nowhere else. No other translation does this. But his yeah. does, because it's not coming from the text, it's coming from somewhere else. Sorry to interrupt that, Mike. I, 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 think this is, um, I think this is really dangerous and really troubling to me, because whether or not I agree with Brian Simmons' interpretations of Scripture or his theological views on a variety of things, my hope would be that we're working from the same Word of God that actually we can have a discussion that God's word is God's word, and that's what we both will take as authoritative. We both want to submit ourselves to God's word. We both want to learn from what God has revealed to us. We both want to bring our lives and our doctrine and our understanding and our behavior more and more in line with the help of God's spirit according to his word, which is the standard. But when you tweak that standard and make that standard speak in the words of your interpretation, you are actually preventing people from hearing the voice of God in a way that might tell them something they didn't already think or didn't already know. And that becomes really dangerous. And it, and it, it, it means this is not just not a translation. It's, it's a way to throw a veil 
over the scriptures to keep people from hearing God speak to them so powerfully through the words of the text that they might have their minds and their hearts changed by what God says, not by what Brian Simmons says. Amen. <laughs> so appreciate you saying that. I think that's so valuable. And if I can just add more support to what you just said, there's, it's no surprise to me that when I go to the Passion Translations publisher website and I see the official endorsers of the work, those who've endorsed the Passion Translation, you know, Bill Johnson has his own version. I've actually got it here, right? The, the one that has the forward by Bill Johnson in it. And uh, those who've endorsed it are almost all, in fact, everybody I've able to been, you know, I've done background checks on just about everybody to my ability here, not criminal background checks. I just look them up to see kind of who are they? Are they are there credentialed scholars that are endorsing it? This is what I was looking for. But I find that all of them are hyper-charismatic people. So Bill Johnson, Bobby Houston, Che Ahn, Lou Engel, James Gold, Patricia King, and the list goes on. And so we find these words embedded in the text, what you'll call a veil, which I think is accurate. Like, how's the, how is Scripture to change my theology if my theology is being placed into the text from my, you know, sort of corporate sort of mentalities and buzzwords that we've got? And then we find all those who are endorsing it are from the same camp. And then we find that there's just more and more evidence of this sort of thing. So I, that's why I thought observation uh, number five you put was really an eye-opener for people to see. And to my knowledge, there has never been a translation of the Bible ever in this generation in English from people who believe in the fivefold ministry, dreams, visions, trances, angels coming, the fire of God, divine encounters, people going to heaven and back, getting fresh revelation with passion un court unrestrained attached to the translation that's a mouthful and that's what i'm trying to do with the passion translation and i've already got people like slamming it i got a whole web pages telling how i'm the devil you know uh, they listed me as one of the most dangerous christians in our in the prophetic apostolic spirit filled movement right now they listed me as one of the one of the most dangerous because of this translation is going to change the church i said it takes my enemies to get it my enemies are prophesying what what's going to happen so let, let's talk about number 6 um, observation 6 is about simmons having a habit of grouping verses together with joint verse numbers now i've seen other um, paraphrases really do this. I've seen this before. Uh, not very common, perhaps, but I have seen it. What's your concern there? Just that it, it proves that he's not translating uh, in, a, in a direct way, because if he was, you'd be able to keep the sentences separate in a way that preserves the verse numbers. And that's, as you say, rightly, paraphrases is where you tend to see this. But he has explicitly said that this is not a paraphrase, right? Uh, it's, it, the wording is clear on the website that this is a reliable translation that can be used for teaching, uh, preaching, uh, personal devotional study, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, in fact, and, let, me, let me, if I can remember off the top of my head, I think what he, the way he words it is, uh, it's, it's, it's good for use as your primary Bible for serious study. Right. I think <laughs> Which is quite a claim. It is quite a claim. I mean, if you can't even reference verse by verse from it, it really is proving that you are separating and rewriting and, and, and moving parts of one sentence into another and adding together and subtracting and so on. So what you end up with is a sentence which might make sense logically, but you can't you can't divide it up because you've changed, changed things so much. So it's a brief observation. And, and it's not just a matter of style as well. I think, I think Alex has been really quite generous in the way he puts that. Let me maybe be a little bit sharper. Um, 
what what he does at several points, even in, just in Colossians, when he combines verses, is to run roughshod over the way the sentence is constructed in Greek. So, as in any language, so in Greek, you can emphasize things by where you put them in the sentence. You can arrange your clauses with conjunctions like and, or but, or now, or you can use certain kinds of prepositions uh, for the purpose of, to express the real goal of what you're saying. And when he combines, what he tends to, tends to do in these cases in Colossians is to completely obliterate what I would call the discourse logic, the clear communication that ought to be there in a good translation. That could make the difference between what's a supporting and what's a more ultimate point that Paul and the Holy Spirit through Paul is trying to make. So it's not just a matter of style. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so number seven, observation number seven, it's about divine titles. So what exactly is the issue there? Can you walk us through that? Yeah, again, I think Alex has done some some really good work here. He, he points out that, that Simmons tends to add, these are again additions that often aren't there, uh, phrases like the anointed one, uh, father, Yahweh, and uh, and there are a lot of things we could say about this, but I think it, it's another example of, quite frankly, it's the kind of thing you might expect to hear someone like him uh, using in prayer as he stood up front and prayed. Uh, th these extra addresses to God, which in a context of prayer might be completely appropriate. That That is, we're addressing, but what he does here is is not nearly as helpful. I think I I will say you know I want I want to be charitable. I absolutely want to be charitable. And as I look through trying to find things to praise, uh, there are times when he will use, as he did in those opening verses, uh, the term Messiah, which is more of a a title to translate Christos, which is sometimes translated straight through as Christ. Uh, that's not a that's not a difference that really makes a big difference, but I actually quite like the way he does that. That Messiah communicates this is this is the, the one who is expected by the Jews on the basis of the Old Testament uh, to come as as this messianic figure, this Davidic kingly figure. So I think he he has a nice instinct in places like that, but I think overall what he does is muddy the waters and and overcomplicate what are sometimes very simple sentences and phrases that Paul uses by adding in these titles. So let's talk about that anointed one real quick because that connects to something else I've been noticing as I was studying through. Uh, I noticed the same thing with, you know, he, he's he's translating Christ and he'll put anointed one there, which means he's translating, as you've observed in your paper, Alex, he's double translating. He's taking the word Christ, which is, is mentioned once in Greek, and he's translating it as Christ, anointed one. I don't know if in some places he might even triple translate it, Christ and Messiah, and anointed one all in the same text. But uh, what's really interesting here is now when you take uh, Acts 11, 1126b, his translation of that passage, where it says that in Antioch, the, they were first called Christians. But his version says it was in Antioch that the followers of Jesus were first revealed as anointed ones. And then I started to say, wait a minute, it, when he says Jesus is an anointed one, which almost sounds like it's a category now, and then he says we're revealed as anointed ones, what's he doing here? And then I find footage of Brian Simmons saying things like, everything that can be said about Jesus can be said about you. How does it feel to be an anointed one? Yeah. Isn't that good? Tell the person next to you, even if you don't like them, <laughs> even if they're weird, tell the person you are an anointed one. Go ahead and tell them.
I'm going to say it as clear as I can make it, folks. Everything you love about Jesus will be said of you. You have everything he has. All of his righteousness, all of his glory, all of his authority. And God has a secret. And it's getting out. And the secret's this. I love you so much, I'm going to make you just like me. Firstborn of many, there's coming a new breed, a new day, a, a new people are going to come. I've chosen. I want to be in that company. Now, I want you to listen with your heart. Don't, don't shut down because you think you know it all, right? Four times he says, my sister, my bride, when he visited me, 2009, walked through my wall, breathed on me. He said, I will give you secrets. And this is the first one he gave me. He said, the word sister is the Hebrew word equal. My equal, my bride. So I translated that. My publisher called up right after I zipped the manuscript to him. And he said, uh, we're not going to publish the book. I said, oh, whoa, yo, what up with that? I mean, what, what, why? Did I do something wrong? He said, well, you're telling people four times in your translation, you're telling people that they're equal to Jesus. I said, no, bro, I'm not telling them that. He is. I would never say that. He says it. If he tells you not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, would he let his own son be unequally yoked? An equal yoke partner will emerge. A radiant, infused with glory, look-alike partner. Everything you love about Jesus will be said over you. You're part of him now. I mean, you two have become one. You are in Christ. You are in him so much. He, he puts all of his glory, all of his beauty, all of his righteousness, strength, authority. Give me a thesaurus. He's given you, dude, everything. If he were to give you any more than he's already given, it would be a threat to the Trinity. It'd have to be a quartet. You have been included. You are destined. You're predetermined to be like Jesus Christ. You are going to be like Christ. Are you hearing me? Okay, then take this like a man. Everything you love about Jesus will be said about you. The Father loves the Son so much, He's going to fill the earth with people just like Him. He's the firstborn among many. There's a pattern, a cornerstone. There's going to be the glorious Son of God in a corporate expression because now the body is Christ. Christ is the body. You have the DNA of God. You're a new species. You're a 200% human being. God and uh, dust and deity have kissed. And then I'm concerned. And then I find a footnote in 1 Peter 4.16, which says uh, in the Passion Translation, the word Christian means anointed ones. Christ is the anointed one, and his followers um, are joined in life union to him. We, too, are anointed ones. And so that starts to be weird to me. What do you guys think of this?
it, it is it is weird and it's it's more than weird it's unhelpful and it's it's linguistically and historically inaccurate so to take your acts example where the, where followers of Jesus are first called Christians to try to read in Messiah anointed one to Christ and then transfer that to Christianoi which we translate as Christians uh, is the kind of mistake that you would make if you don't understand how languages work and if you didn't understand the historical context of Acts. So what's actually going on there is they're being called probably derisively by the name of this figure, Christ, who's become known to some people, uh, this, this crucified so-called Messiah. It's not a name of honor, at least not initially. Of course, it's taken on that way. So it's linguistically wrong, it's historically wrong, but once again, you can understand there might be a theological desire to communicate to people what's true of Jesus because he represents us as our mediator. He has paid for our sins, he has taken the curse for us, he's given us free and full forgiveness, and the Father has poured out every blessing upon him as the one who's done this work perfectly, and now that comes to you as a believer. Of course, that's a theological truth that we see elsewhere in the New Testament, and we want to affirm and we want to rejoice in that. But that's not what's going on when you have the, the term Christian, not even close. Yeah, yeah, and there's and there are definitely limits. Like you would probably not agree with the phrase "everything that can be said of Jesus can be said of you." I mean that that is taking it without sort of any context. Uh, looking at Christ as he stands on our behalf, as he goes to represent us before God and all that. But um, instead, it starts to feel like there's identity confusion. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So um, that my concern there is that I, being someone who, who's kind of been in different camps in my Christian walk, I read the text and I, I now think in the Passion Translation, I go, oh, somebody else might pass this right over. But somebody who knows sort of the more intense, hyper or charismatic groups would realize that this is now going to be a preaching point. That because the lingo is placed in the text, it's like preaching points for a particular sect, a legitimate Christian group, but who has sort of particular beliefs that are more um, unique are now read into the text. You mentioned in observation number eight that there's the softening of difficult ideas. What is that? And where do you see that in Colossians here? So I think Dr. Binner spoke to that a bit already, and he can speak a little bit more to it, perhaps. But I I see that one of the one of the features of uh, God's Word is that it includes things in it that we that challenges our assumptions and beliefs, uh, and and that's a good thing because God uses His Word that is alive and active and and pierces and divides uh, a, a truth and gets us moving forward in our spiritual walk, our knowledge of God, and it does that by confronting uh, the way in which we do or think about things. Right? And so that means that we're going to come across things in the, in the scriptures that we disagree with and need to uh, change our ideas about them. Right? I think uh, Tim Keller has a good way of speaking about this. He said, would you not expect that a, a, a holy and transcendent and majestic God will have some aspects to him that are surprising and sometimes uncomfortable or different or unexpected uh, for you. And so if, if you come to the scriptures and everything is as you expect, 
then then you're seeing yourself in the scriptures. You're, you're not seeing God. And I think the, the softening of ideas thing is that in order to make some of the uh, biblical truths that we hold dear and more palatable to people, Brian has chosen a different approach to uh, to translating uh, these things. And so, for example, I think this is a good good one that demonstrates that kind of idea. Uh, chapter 1, verse 20. So the, the Greek's very clear here that the, it's a verb which means to make peace. And Simmons has back to in original intent, restored to innocence again. And I've said that, that that is partially true in one sense. It A result of forgiveness is that uh, there is a restoration of a relationship and, and right standing, and that's that's true. But the, the fact that peace needs to be made implies that there was not peace uh, at first. In fact, there was enmity, and that's a very clear teaching of the Scriptures, that we are at enmity with God in our flesh because of our sin against Him. And so there's a, there's a need for peace to be made. There's a hostility that exists because uh, God is holy and just. And so for transgressions and sin, there is a need for forgiveness. And so taking away that idea starts to change the way in which we speak about what it is that Jesus did. So this is not a harmless claim. I I think this is a a pretty major one. Maybe just another one uh, in, in one of his double verses, chapter 1, verse 28 to 29, is a very... Obvious Greek word for warning there. And he's and he says that awaken hearts. And those are two totally uh, they're different ideas. There's a little bit of overlap in the sense that when we get a warning, we realize, wait, this is important and I need to respond. But it is it is a warning in the sense of there is impending judgment. Whereas awakening hearts just means come on guys, get more excited about uh, Jesus. You know, those are two different ideas. So that's why I have an issue with that kind of approach. Yeah. Now, what concerns me is you can actually start to piece together some of his particular, peculiar theological positions and preaching styles from his translation, which, I I mean, ideally, am I right, Dr. Benner, to say that the translator wants to be as invisible as possible? Like, you don't want to look at it and think, oh, so-and-so translated that, or this was translated from this group or that, that perspective. I think that's I think that's largely the case. Yeah, that the translator the translator's job, and this is what most translations are doing, is to accurately bring through in an understandable way uh, what's there in the original text, so that people can access that without knowing that original language. And then, on the basis of the good translation, they can have debates about how to interpret it. Uh, so, so I think that's exactly right. You, I mean, you have in other areas of life. You know, when we go to school. And when we're in high school literature classes, our teacher might, uh, in, in an English class, use a different translation of Homer's Odyssey to, to this one, and it's known as the Fagel's translation. Well, that's not because it's what Robert Fagel's thought Homer should have written, and he changes the words. It's just because he's done such a good translation, it becomes known. And that's, that's not the kind of thing, though, that we do when we translate by invisible committee on, uh, on, on the issue of Bible translation. So I think it's inappropriate. Yeah, and, and I, I, I just like that you, you highlighted the fact, Alex, <clears throat> that he's softening ideas. There's these sort of uncomfortable aspects. And we all are aware that these are the very things that are the hardest to swallow in some of these teachings of Scripture that are all of a sudden just missing in that place. 
and that's concerning. That's concerning. Um, you uh, mentioned also, I'm going to go to observation number 10 here, where you talk about failure to reference authoritative reference works. Uh, what exactly is going on there? Uh, what do you mean by that? Normally, in translation practice or scholarly practice with original texts in translation, the further you depart from the accepted original meanings of words, for example, the more necessary it is to justify your new spin on the translation. And given the fact that we've already pointed out just how significantly he's departing from every other translation, that's something evidently he's wearing as a badge of honor. You would expect that he would justify how he's getting from A to B with his translation. But as far as I can tell, we don't see that. So normal normal uh, authorities that every New Testament and Greek scholar would acknowledge uh, that you need to work with, uh, normal things like um, certain lexicons or dictionaries just don't appear at all, as far as I can tell. So you're, you're left to draw the conclusion, I'm afraid, or I am, that uh, that it, it's just something that he wants to do to make a, a, a poetic gloss, perhaps, on the English text that he has in front of him, rather than a legitimate translation of the Greek text. And you also mentioned um, in this paper, it, Alex, you mentioned that he's seems to be using Strong's as a source, but it's hard to right. see how he's using, say, what you would consider typical lexicons more authoritative and well-respected lexicons. Now, average people, a lot of people are just like Strong's. Isn't Strong's really good? Could you explain what the issue there is? Yeah, I think Dr. Bennett can say a little bit more about this, but I, I would just say you, you, do, you do not use Strong's as a, because it's not an authoritative lexicon. It, it has been helpful for a lot of Christians over the years to go and get a sense of basic meaning in, in Greek, but there has been a tremendous amount of development in, uh, in scholarship it, and uh, people doing very specific research just into sometimes single words uh, over decades and, and the, the result of that is it goes into authoritative scholarly lexicons and there's a reason that's, that Strong's is basically free. I mean it's a, it's, a, it's a thick book but you can get it for a couple of dollars, um, sometimes even second hand for a dollar. Uh, and there's a reason for that, because uh, scholarly lexicons take so many decades of very careful work, and, and, and so those are the things that you want to be quoting. But uh, Strong's, it, it also indicates to me that he isn't familiar with the scholarly world, and perhaps that's connected with the, the, the training and so on, because I've never come across a, a scholar referencing uh, Strong's as, as a part of their argument. So I'm not sure. I think that's exactly you. If, if I go, if I go in, uh, you know, for pre-op or surgery, some kind of complicated surgery that I'm going to need, and I see that the only book on my surgeon's shelf is Gray's Anatomy. Okay, at, at one time that was a really valuable resource, and it's a kind of classic now for its illustrations, which look a bit retro. But that is not the thing that I want my surgeon studying and quoting to me when he's telling me how my heart surgery is going to go forward. I want to know that he's been trained with the most up-to-date tools possible so he understands what he's talking about and has taken advantage of the advances but also the corrections that have been made since the time of something like Gray's or even early resource. And that's the impression that you get when someone just cites Strong. Strong is fine. As I've said, it's free. I can remember in the days before I learned Greek wanting to get my hands on every possible Bible study resource I could to understand God's Word better. 
And so you wouldn't blame you know, someone like that for reaching on the shelf for Strong's or Young's or other old lexicons. But uh, a first year student who cites Strong's in a paper for me this year is going to be failed for that because they've been taught that we have now a lexicon in Greek called BDAG. And, and they know from my classes that BDAG is the gold standard. It's been updated. And there's a lot of good research based on new evidence that goes into that. There are better word definitions and glosses. If you want to get a little poetic and you want to communicate it well, BDAG is the place to go to look for those sources. But that's nowhere cited here. The reason why this weighs in so heavily is because on, on top of put all this together and then combine it with very murky educational history. Um, Brian Simmons claims that he's studied, but it's, it's difficult to get a solid claim about how much training he's had. In, in one place, he might say, you know, I'm not a scholar, and he openly admits I'm not a scholar. And somewhere else, he, he talks about what it takes to be part of his passion project, and he says not only do you have to be have a scholarly understanding of these things, you have to also have a passion for God. And you're like, well, wait, doesn't that make you a scholar then if you're the lead of the whole thing? I had brilliant leaders and men of God and mighty brainiacs tell me I had no business to translate the Bible because I was not a Greek scholar. They said, where are your credentials? Who do you think you are? When you when you started this project, um, were you had you already had training in Greek and Hebrew, or was this something that you had to jump into again? Or I had minimal background in biblical languages, so yeah, it was something that honestly something the Lord has really helped me with. Um, okay, great. I have learned a few languages. I'm a linguist. I. I have a crazy delight in this kind of stuff. I'm writing a book that will be entitled Glorious Eschatology. It will be a scholarly commentary on the book of Revelation. There are tremendous insights that come when the Aramaic text is placed alongside of the Greek, and it's a long, arduous debate, and I don't want to get into that with you. I am a minority, uh, uh, I'm among the minority scholars that, that believe that the original autographs of the New Testament for the most part, were written in Aramaic, translated into Greek. As I study the original manuscripts of Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, I have uncovered what I believe is the love language of God. And it's been missing from many modern translations. But beyond scholarly level, I think what qualifies a person to be involved in this monumental project of the Passion Translation is not just an exceptional understanding of Greek and Hebrew, but to have a heart for God. So it's confusing. Uh, there's no CV for Brian where you can actually look at, here's his degree from this school when it comes to these things. He has a, a, a degree in uh, uh, some sort of ministry. I'm trying to remember right now what it is. I'll, I'll put it on the screen for people. A ministry position with like a focus on prayer that he got from the C. Peter Wagner School, which is a, which is a hyper charismatic school. But that's not a, a languages background. And... And his previous involvement in the Payakuna translation, he seems to have, in some places at least, greatly exaggerated how much work he did there. And so you add that to the observations you're making about failing to reference authoritative reference works. And I mean, it, I'm going to use my word, it, it looks fraudulent. The, the content looks fraudulent to me. Um, yeah, the, the fact uh, adding together the, the parts of the picture and the idea of using strongs and so on, it. it in, in my view, it's 
it's almost like the, the most likely candidate for how he's gone about this is to look at an interlinear online, which has uh, you've got a running source of the original text and then a translation into English, and then gone and done some individual work on various words and things, and then consulted things like Strong's and added in his own verbs and nouns and adjectives and all that kind of thing, and then kind of reconstructed a translation. And that's kind of the sort of thing that you'd expect with somebody referencing Strong's and so on instead of BDAG and other reference words. Yeah. I would love to see an interlinear version of the Passion Translation, though. <laughs> that, would be, that would be pretty remarkable. I think I thought about including something about that in, in the paper is that you, you actually wouldn't be able to do an interlinear in, in, in large chunks of it because the words and the phrases and the sentences in a number of places don't correspond at all to the Greek. I think you'd agree on that. But no, there would be huge gaps and then rearrangements. It would be a mess. Brian Simmons has frequently claimed that God gave him supernatural empowerment, a spirit of revelation, and secrets of Hebrew and Greek and that this translation represents those secrets of Hebrew and Greek. One secret in particular, he's actually said this is the secret, is homonyms. And this allows him to say, here's a, here's a word, here's a word that, you guys know this already, but for the audience, here's a word, here's another word that sounds just like it. And then he'll take the meaning of both of those and put them in the text. So this allows him to double and triple translate words. This is something you've observed in your observation number 11. What are some examples of Brian Simmons double and triple translating words and is there any chance this is just him being brilliantly insightful and getting secrets of the original language? You pick one and I can comment. Sure. Uh, so uh, I think uh, 126, uh, he, he revealed is uh, a good good translation there. I think that's, that's fine. Uh, but, but then it starts adding uh, unfolded and uh, manifested. So that one becomes a triple translation. Uh, is, is one sense. Uh, I, I think also with the four one adds Lord in addition to to Master, because in another place he he translates uh, a Master as employer. But it would be kind of strange to have to say the same thing about God in this context. Uh, so we can we can talk about the, the homonyms as well. I think Dr. Bennett can add to this, but that is more likely in. Hebrew for the occurrence for there to be homonyms because it's the language is composed of root letters and so you can get uh, different words with some of the same root letters and so that that doesn't happen uh, much much less so in, in Greek and I, I think more what he's doing here is he is taking the various possible meanings of one word and adding all of those meanings together not the meanings of two words that sound the same uh, but rather different meanings of one word and then importing those in it. We have a, a technical term for that which we call illegitimate totality transfer. And just to break that down, that means we take all of the possibilities or a good number of the possibilities of what a word could mean and then we just put all of those in the text. Uh, but that's not how a language works. Uh, we have, uh, when I say I'm going to cross a bridge, you know in the context of what we're talking about that that means that I'm walking across an object constructed over water or an obstacle or something. You're not going to t tell me that what I mean by bridge is the game that is played by two people sitting at the table, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't take all the possible meanings of every word and put it into uh, every sentence. 
and uh, Simmons seems to do that a lot here. Um, that's going on. He's doing that here. And now let me just speak to this is this this is definitely not then a secret of Greek that's appearing with these double and triple translating of words that's going on. No, it's not. Um, we could, you know, Alex is throwing around some fancy terms we love to use. We like to make up big, big phrases in, in uh, talking about Greek. But no, the short answer is, as far as I can tell, what he what he's doing here is actually what a good, effective preacher does a lot of times when you want to drive home a point. So if you want to say revealed is a is a key concept in this verse, 126, and you want to help your people understand that, you start to use some different synonyms. But there's absolutely nothing in Greek that signals that we would have to do that here. And I think it's interesting, uh, and we can start to see the shape of this just from what the work Alex has done shows us. It's interesting that he does that particularly in certain places, which once again seem to fit the pattern of theology that you might have that you're describing. And he doesn't do it in other places where you might also want to emphasize things. So it's it's not just that I think he's um, uh, he's at, at times bringing in too many slightly different meanings in the way Alex was talking about with his bridge example. It's that he's just piling up synonyms, but he's doing that as a, as a poet or as a preacher rather than as a translator. Yeah. Now, could you speak briefly to the homonym issue that I did bring up? Um, he, now, it's hard to tell where he's doing this with homonyms because from what I can tell, he doesn't supply footnotes to tell you. So in some cases, I think we're just, when you go, there's this extra phrase in the in the verse. I don't know where it came from. I'm thinking that in some cases, this comes from him thinking, oh, there's an, from, just because of the claims he's made, there's an Aramaic word and that Aramaic has a homonym and the homonym means this. And if I bring that meaning into it, then I'm going to add an extra phrase to unpack that meaning as well. So the footnotes don't really reveal this. I don't think he wants criticism on this particular issue. But uh, is that legitimate? Um, or or would you have anything to comment on what I've just shared? Uh, no, I don't think it's a legitimate translation technique. I don't think it gives us an effective translation. That's not something that in any standard course of study you would be taught to do with either Greek or Hebrew. Um, it is something, however, that we've seen from time to time in the his history of texts over the centuries. And where we see it is where you get people who are making claims to secret knowledge and who like to play a word association game and jump from one word to another and then, in some ways, reverse engineer an explanation for how they got to the, the conclusion or the, the final point they wanted to get to. And so you get this in... in some forms of Jewish mysticism, like Kabbalah. Uh, you've seen it in some of the Gnostic traditions that Alex mentioned earlier. But there's no, there's actually no way to, um, he couldn't footnote it, because there's nothing to footnote there. It's, it's him associating, and it's not standard linguistic practice. Another way to perhaps also think about it is, uh, if it were true that the, because I think he explicitly said something along the lines of, it is the, it is the, it is the secret God revealed to him of how all prophetic revelation works, or something like that, using using uh, Hebrew and homonyms. Now, when Jesus came to me and said, "I'm going to give you secrets," one of the secrets he gave me was uh, that of homonyms. You see, when you translate Hebrew, you're forced to say it one way or the other, right? Well. But it's both. The Lord showed me it's the homonymic uh, structure of Hebrew is going to be the key to understanding Revelation in the last days, including the book of Revelation, which 
you haven't got yet, honestly. If that were the case, that would make it almost impossible to, tr to know what the meaning of any text is, because if everything was uh, homonyms, then you'd, and you, that means you would have an infinite number of combinations across the whole of the text, and you could make 50 different texts uh, based on what the homonyms are, which is, uh, homonyms are, if, wherever they uh, apply in, in the text, are more something that helps with interpretation or em puts emphasis on something. A good example might be, this one you'll probably all recognize, is uh, in Judges 15, Samson, after uh, taking out a thousand of the uh, Philistines with a, with a jawbone, he says, uh, with, the, with the jawbone of a donkey, heap upon heap. And what he means is, I've made this pile of body using this jawbone. And, and the word for jawbone has the same uh, three-letter roots in Hebrew as the word for heap. So he's just, he's making, he's a playful guy in chapter 14, he made riddles and so on. So it's, it's, a, it's a literary device, but it's not a translation device. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Well, I think, I think using, even using the term homonym is a bit misleading there. Uh, you know, it's maybe doing the same kind of work that about Aramaic manuscripts does. Uh, you could talk much more helpfully about forms of word play that occur in any language, but you can still trace those in the way Alex just did with the Hebrew text of Judges. You can point to shared roots and a context which helps you to pin down the meaning and translate it carefully into the target language. That's a different matter, as far as I understand it, to what he's doing here. He's, he's making associations in, in a playful kind of way that reminds you almost of what um, some of the postmodern deconstructionists do with texts. There's like that seed of truth. Okay, yeah, homonyms do exist. They occur in some places, but this isn't how that works. The you know the thing you're appealing to doesn't justify the thing you're doing with it. And that that this happens when someone I think is trying to um, pull. I call it pulling the Greek over someone's eyes <laughs> when they're trying to. I mean, we we've seen it. If you learn as soon as you learn a little bit of Greek, the first thing you notice is how many people only know a little bit of Greek and in sermons and messages they're, you know, when they're like, well, this particular Greek word doesn't just mean throw a ball. It means throw it as hard as you can because you're angry or something like that. And you go, nah, <laughs> no, that's not how it works. So, um, uh, yeah, this is, this is, unfortunately it's manipulative to people who are trusting the man to represent language properly. This is not the first time this has uh, happened. I, I can think of an uh, example in, uh, mystical Sufi Islam, for example, they actually use a phrase very similar to, to what uh, uh, Simmons does in terms of the love language of God. And one of the, the founding guys of that, uh, Abil Abbas Ahmad, he's the 18th century um, mystic, and he had access to a lot of these early uh, third century type Gnostic texts, and he would make similar claims. Uh, and, and do things with the language and say there's, there's secrets behind them and things. So this is not the first time, as Dr. Bittner pointed out, that people have made these kinds of claims uh, in history. It's a, it's a pattern that repeats itself. So on number 12, observation number 12, you say that on a number of occasions, Simmons intentionally overrides the clear meaning of the Greek text. Can you explain the example you give? You give a few examples, uh, but from Colossians 3, 6 on this issue. Right, so uh, three six. Uh, the the Greek is uh, wrote again. It's very simple, easy to translate. Uh, would say something like, because of, of these, uh, the the wrath of God is coming 
and then I've got in brackets there upon the sons of, of, of disobedience. But the, the part that matters here is because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And he translates that as when you live in these vices, you ignite the anger of God against these acts of disobedience. And so uh, what, what it's clearly the point here is that because of these uh, vices, uh, the Greek is saying that the wrath of God is coming upon the people who commit them. It's, it's very clear from the context. But he rarely overrides that and says and adds in against these acts of disobedience. Because he seems to be trying to avoid the idea that God's wrath might be deserved by people, uh, but rather acts. But if we look at what the New Testament says about uh, God's wrath and the need for forgiveness of sins, God doesn't, God doesn't punish the acts themselves. People are what commit acts. Uh, the implication almost comes across here from Simmons as that it's the, the acts themselves that are going to get wrath and, and need to be removed rather than that God is going to pour out wrath on, on people. And I, I think there's no way of getting around. He has changed what the text is saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now that corresponds with the talking point I've heard from his circle, actually. Uh, Bill Johnson has said this, like, it's not that God's mad at you, he's just mad at the things that are hurting you. Um, and I would say that there's, I mean, there's a truth in that, but that itself isn't exactly true. It's like not really the whole story. And and here it's uh, unfortunately being placed into the text of scripture. So you also give an example of, from Colossians 1 verses 28 and 29. Could you explain that one? Yeah, this one was a, a pretty clear case of, as I said, like directly overriding the text here, because again, Greek's very clear that Paul, the reason Paul is writing to the uh, Colossians, and I think Dr. Brittner can expand on this as well, is is to bring about by the uh, applying the word in the Spirit that they will be uh, presented mature in Christ, that this word will have an effect in them by the power of the Spirit that will increasingly conform them to the likeness of their Savior, Jesus Christ. Right. So this is uh, the, the grace of God working in his people over time to make them more and more like Christ. But he ends up changing it to say, to present to every believer the revelation of being his perfect one. And so what's changing in the meaning here is not that the believer is becoming more and more like Christ, but that he's saying that a revelation comes to them that they are his perfect one. Now, we're not trying to comment uh, theologically and say that that's a problem, because in one sense it is true that because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are made, we, we have his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he sees the perfect works of his son uh, and, instead of the sins that we have uh, committed, because Jesus has paid for them, right? So we heartily want to affirm that and, and view that as really at the core of the gospel. But is that what Paul is talking about here? No, definitely not. He's talking about the ongoing way in which people are being made more and more like Jesus. So I think it's totally changing the meaning of, of what, what Paul is talking about. I don't know that I have that much to add other than amen to that. I mean, that's he's, he's completely switched it around in the way that Alex just described. And so, you know, I, I, I feel really, I feel really, um, I feel really passionate as I look at this so-called passion translation that that is not going to communicate to people opening up their Bibles or listening to someone who's preaching from this text what it is that the Holy Spirit through Paul is trying to communicate to them. 
here in this text, God's saying he wants to present believers mature, that he's at work by his spirit, in Colossians especially of all places, not just to give you revelation. There's no revelation in this text, no word that even comes close to revelation. But in the context, what we've got is something else that's, that's, that's rich and, and that's missed. It's the fullness of God offered in the knowledge of Christ that is the thing that believers are then being rooted and grounded in and growing in spiritually. And that's been completely disfigured by a translation that we read in, in this case. Let's look at observation number 13. Uh, you mentioned inconsistency in italicizing additions or expansions. Um, can you just, in a sentence, explain like what's the point of italics in the Bible and why do you have a problem with the way they're not showing up in places in the Passion Translation? Sure, I mean, this is a relatively brief uh, point, but Simmons has said that when he has supplied new uh, additional words to make something more clear or put an expansion, that he would italicize it so that you'd be aware. And I'm, I'm thankful for that as an approach. Uh, there are some translations which uh, do do that. Uh, if they need to supply a, a noun to make a sentence work in English or something, then they'll italicize it, and I, I think that's that is that's commendable. Uh, the problem is you also don't want to see italics everywhere because uh, that means that a lot more is going on than, than just the translating, as we've mentioned. However, what I think has happened here is there's a, a good number of times, uh, and it happens in almost all of the books, as far as I'm aware, that he's translated, is that there is material in there which counts as one of those additions or, or changes that he's made or expansions that he doesn't italicize. And I'm, I'm definitely not going to venture an opinion on whether that's intentional or not. It may just be editorial. But it is very problematic because then you don't know when you look at this text, is, the, is this Brian Simmons or is this Paul? I mean, we, we have a problem in a, a whole host of ways as we've been talking about. But I think specifically here, not having the italics when he has actually added things is, is a real problem. One of the things everybody really seems to want to know about, because we, when we talk about like Aramaic and big broad reaching issues, uh, that takes a little bit for people to kind of like think, how is this really affecting the translation when I'm, when I'm actually trying to live it out? So one thing people want to know is like, what are some areas where the Passion Translation has changed like practical instructions, like where the Bible applies to my life. And you give three areas where I think this happens. They, the instructions in Colossians between slaves and masters, husbands and wives, and children and parents. So let me start with the first one. How has Simmons' translation altered something really in, in the teaching on slaves and masters? Well, one of the things Alex points out in this paper is that he opts for employees and employers instead of slaves and masters. Uh, in 3.22 and then in 4.1. And again, I think I can, I can, I have a guess as to what's going on here. There are a lot of commentaries and a lot of pastors who will, in both Colossians and similar texts in Ephesians, uh, try and make this more relevant and understandable for people today by explaining it in this way. There's a kind, and there is, a, there's a kind of analogy that works from ancient slavery to ancient employment, uh, to, to contemporary employment. Uh, and we feel this, so we go to work someday. But it's not a straight line, and it's not, that's an interpretation. Again, that's a commentary. That, that sort of thing is a claim that belongs in a commentary where you're making an argument about 
how we move from Greco-Roman culture to 21st century Southern California culture or American culture, whatever it is, it's our target. It's not a translation. And the thing that we miss then is the strangeness of the translation. Uh, we, what we want is, once again, to be surprised by and slightly set off. Uh, we, we want our attention peaked. We want to be a little bit off balance when we hear this ancient text that's given to us in a fresh, accurate translation so that we can ponder it and with the help of God's Spirit come to understand what's he saying to us in it. And so when I read Slaves and Masters, my first thought as a, as a 21st century American might be, oh, that sounds a little bit like Southern slavery in U.S. history. But I, then I can do a bit more thinking, of course, and realize that's not either exactly what's going on here. And so maybe it sends me to a study Bible, maybe it sends me to my pastor, maybe it sends me to another resource to try and understand, well, what were the dynamics between ancient slaves and masters? And how are those similar, but also very different to what's going on in, for example, an employee-employer relationship? So it doesn't belong in a translation, even though one might make an argument for it as an analogy for application. Yeah, so one potential application of the text has become the translation of the text, yes. which has removed the initial or original meaning of the text and replaced it. Um, what about the teaching between husband and wives? How has someone represented that in Colossians? This is, a, this is an example of the problem uh, that he faces when he comes across something that perhaps he doesn't exactly like the idea of or wants to soften the idea. And so he makes an appeal to a resource, a language resource, that is really problematic. Now, this is something that if I, if I back in, in first year Greek or something, was asked to do a word study on, I could do this in two minutes, no problem. Really straightforward. And you'd see the results uh, would be, so it, it, first, uh, what we're talking about here. Well, chapter yeah, tell us, tell us the word that, that he's, in your opinion, translating wrong here. What is it? I'll do that. So in, in chapter 3, verse 18, the Greek is, submit yourselves to your husbands. All right? And the, the, the Greek is hupotasso. This is, uh, so I'll read you the, trans, the uh, meaning that's given directly by BDAG, that authoritative reference work, which is to uh, subject oneself to be subjected or subordinated or to obey, for example. That's uh, that's one of its meanings listed there. It's, and it's lists, uh, DDAG lists that as the meaning in this, in this context. So Simmons puts a, a footnote here, uh, and, and uh, it, this is really, I found this kind of somewhat humorous because it, it's, it's strange. He, he says that hupotasso can mean attached, uh, but the problem is, the word attached there is in its meaning in BDAG is to to add a document at the end of another document, i.e. to attach or staple or append. So clearly Paul doesn't have in mind here a husband and wife being stapled, right? Uh, so that he, he actually doesn't seem to understand how a lexicon works and how the meanings of words work. You can't just say, oh, one possible meaning is this, therefore that's, that's what it means here. Yeah, what, so ultimately... It, it seems then he's he's taken what is a very obvious meaning that kind of everybody we know what this means. Let's talk about how it applies. Let's carefully understand it in context and all that. But we know what the word means, um, and he's replaced it with a meaning that seems illegitimate. And I, I can tell you from having listened to many many hours of his content, he's extremely interested in changing uh, the church's or guiding the church's perceptions on the role of women both in marriage and in churches. And he would say he has a very egalitarian view. 
Ladies, are you sitting down? It says, women, wives, submit to your husbands, right? The Greek language indeed says submit. What if the original text was written in Aramaic and translated into Greek and they missed it a little bit? Here's the Aramaic text. I'll make some men mad here. I just ruined your abuse system of your wife here. Stop it. But it says that wives be tenderly devoted to your husband as the church is tenderly devoted to Christ. Just that should sell the Passion Translation, just that one verse. You know, you, you should get it just for that. Come on, ladies, women of God, rise up and, and, and silence all these critical know-it-alls that say women should never do those things. Oh, yeah? Make them look like idiots. I dare you, ladies. Come on, challenge this religious spirit that says women can't teach, women can't pastor, women can't prophesy, women can't. What is this women can't stuff? How come it's always the men saying that, by the way? Anyway, you got me on my high horse. Now, I don't actually care what his view is there. I just care that his view isn't causing him to change the Bible in that regard. And that, that seems to be what's happening here. Is that right? That's exactly right, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's, it's just completely irresponsible translation. This is basic arithmetic when it comes to translating this, this Greek in this context. And so the only explanation I can think of is that you want it to mean something different. And so you are translating it in this way. And as you say, fine, perhaps from other texts or for other reasons, he wants to put forward a different view of the Bible's teaching on marriage. But you can't do that from this text. That's not what it means here. And even, I mean, this is fascinating. So those of us who, who love God's Word and want to submit to God's Word, even though it's not culturally acceptable in certain ways anymore, or it's the, maybe not the dominant view, uh, we're, we're pointing out that in this case, for example, it means to be subjected to, to be subordinated to, to obey. That's the meaning of the word. And we realize we've got to grapple with the implications that follow and the debates that follow if we want to say this is God's word, not just Paul's word. And so we can't, uh, we can't relativize it. I would have agreement if I were sitting here with a feminist liberal scholar who didn't agree with me that this is God's word, but she would look at the same word in the same text and say, there's no way you can translate it in any other way. And that's why she or he might not like what Paul's saying here. So people from very different ideological backgrounds would translate this responsibly uh, in the way that most translations do, not in the way we see in the Passion Translation. Right. Yeah. We want to relegate our theological discussions post-translation instead of (laughs) pre-translation. And that's and that's what he's done in many cases with, with texts, especially as they relate to women. I, I think he feels as though he's being a, a champion for the cause of women, but I have a feeling that women want to know what the Bible actually says <laughs> and, not, and not have some sort of agenda pushed onto it. We sure want them to know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, on children and parents, uh, what, what was your observation there? This is another example of just a again, a straightforward issue of his, uh, how he does his, his work in, in Greek. Uh, there is no other way uh, to, to translate what this means. The Greek, uh, Greek word here in, in chapter 3, verse 20, children obey your parents. It's hubakuete. And that, that means to follow instructions, to obey, uh, to be subject to. Uh, that's, that's without doubt. And it says here, see this, uh, uh, he double translates it, both words incorrectly as, 
respect and pay attention to. Now, one of the ways in which children respect their parents is to obey them. But we all agree that those are those words have different ideas, even if there's some kind of connection. It really softens the idea that children are to be subject to their parents. And that is something that if you read the book of Proverbs, you'll see is a key part of the way in which God blesses children. They're, they're instructed and they grow and they're blessed by the teaching and instructions of their parents. And so I think that's not up for negotiation. No, I, I agree. And if, if somebody were, were uh, telling my teenagers or my younger children on the basis of this text that it's sufficient for them to tell me, you know what, Dad, I respect you and I'm paying attention to what you say, but I'm not going to do what you say, they would have it wrong because there's a difference there. What the text says is you have to obey your parents, not just merely respect and pay attention to yeah, so you, what what I'm trying to point out here is, uh, particularly in our culture, husbands and wives, children and parents, this is this is actually altering the way we apply the Bible into very important relationships in our lives, and I think that God wrote what He wrote, and we have no right to alter any of that stuff. Um, you can you can follow it or not, <laughs> to, to you, but yeah, that's what it says. So, in your paper, you also give a list of uh, ten, I believe it's ten verses in Colossians where Simmons, quote, makes speculative theological interpretations, either transforming the meaning of the text or adding his own ideas into it, unquote. Uh, people can read your paper and they can go through all 10 examples if they want, but can you please explain the example from Colossians 3.16? I thought that was really insightful. This is where Simmons handles the phrase spiritual songs, but he translates it as prophetic songs. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, so so he says uh, there's a word there for, for uh, spiritual in Greek, and of its ways of thinking about what it can mean, nowhere in that range of ideas at all is the idea of prophecy. There is no I, nothing connected with that at all. And so this is an example of where he has imposed something uh, on, on the text there that he wants it to say, my understanding is this is connected to uh, uh, spontaneous types of worship that uh, that involve an element of prophecy, uh, God speaking through a person saying something that God plans to do or, or something like that. But that is that is not the context uh, in which this is uh, being spoken. Yeah. The issue me, here is the nature of the speech. Yeah, the nature of the speech. So th let me let me hammer this home because I think. It's really important. Uh, in Brian Simmons' commentary on the Song of Songs, he has the following phrase. The power of prophetic song prepares hearts for harvest. The new thing God is unfolding will require new songs to be sung. The seasons of singing and dancing, the season of singing and dancing is here. What I'm suggesting here is that Brian Simmons presents prophetic songs as a key to end times revival. Brian Simmons then unjustifiably inserts the phrase prophetic songs into Colossians, which then creates a platform for a teaching he's bringing with him to the text of scripture. And this is the kind of thing we see happening with the passion. It's not just, um, well, that wasn't quite accurate. In addition to that, there is like, no, there's like a theological agenda that seems to be in place here, which is, which is why I'm, Trying to make a big deal about this this whole thing with the passion project, bringing you guys on to share your thoughts on this. So yeah, that, that was why that example stood out to me because I'm going, wait a minute, I've he's talked about prophetic songs a lot. 
And guess what? Now he's got a scripture to prove that he's right. Well, it's an interesting connection because uh, in, this, in addition to being just flat out wrong in, in terms of the Greek translation, it's also problematic in the, in the contextual use. So it's not just that linguistically we can say that this is not possible, but contextually it's, it's obviously not the case because he's contrasting this to other types of speech. And remember that the, uh, Colossians as a whole, is Paul is, is right, and uh, he's, he's teaching doctrine about Christ that can correct the, the ways in which things have been going wrong for the Colossians. That has affected the way that they've lived their lives, affected the way they relate to one another, affected the things that they say and do. And so he's trying to correct those through this text. What prophecy has to do with any of that? anyone's guess. So as you say, it seems to have just been, oh, this is an opportunity for me to put this prophetic songs idea. Yeah, it's fascinating for me to listen to this and hear you decode the Passion Translation for me. Um, at, because effectively, that's what it sounds like is going on here, that there are some coded phrases that he is inserting without any justifiable warrant in the original text in order to trigger a kind of reaction or agreement from people with, with his theology. And of course, that's really dangerous, but it also does the thing Alex just points out. It, it misses that, what's going on in this verse? In 3.16, we want, we want the word of Christ, that is, the word that Christ has given through his, his apostles, the first century apostles whose writings we have. And if we're talking prophets, let's talk about the Old Testament prophets who also maybe call psalms that we have in the old testament written down for us call those spiritual songs we want we want the bible to dwell in us richly so that god can use his word inside us to remake us and to keep us from error keep us from living in ways that displease him that's not anything to do with uh, what you just described that most people from that certain uh, background would understand when they read prophetic songs which is yeah. not what the text says yep that's it. <laughs> That's it right there. All right. You also offer, this is observation 16, uh, sectarian theological ideas. You offer five different examples of places where Simmons adds what you call sectarian theological. Ideas. I mean, we're already talking about this with the prophetic songs. That's, it, it's not, the point isn't whether it's true or false. The point is it's sectarian as it, as in it comes from a sect. It's not from Christianity as a whole. It's from a particular sect and it's a theological idea that's now being imported into text. Um, one of them that struck me, though, of all five, was Colossians 1-2. What did he add there? And we kind of mentioned it earlier, but let's highlight it now. When we use the word sectarian, this is not uh, meant to be a divisive or um, derogatory in any way. What we're sim it's simply an adjective that, that describes that this is, a, it, this is a teaching that's associated with a particular group of people. Like We have different uh, groups in Christianity who believe slightly different things about um, some things and sometimes very different things about others. Uh, but so what we mean here is that the terminology that he's using is related to what you might describe as uh, his own uh, sect that has their own uh, language, certain terms that they use. And the, the problem with that is he hasn't just written this for that group of people. He's written, he's done the Passion Translation for the whole world. And what you end up doing when you use terms that only you and your group tend to use is that it excludes everybody else from the, the actual meaning that they would take if they had the right translation. So I think that that's problematic uh, on, uh, just in the first place. But 
here again to mention that idea of, of releasing, it is it is something that we, we just don't have that verbal idea in, in the Greek text for the ways in which the New Testament talks about things like uh, forgiveness or peace or grace or things like that. It uh, has this mystical idea of a substance or uh, a realm. I know uh, in the theological circles, he's in this a lot of discussion of changing atmospheres uh, and uh, releasing anointings. And these are, these are ideas that seem to be disconnected from the ways in which the New Testament can talk about those things. So that's why I think it, it's a problem to use phrases like releasing when that's just connected with his particular group. Yeah, and I'll, okay, on a personal level, like pastorally, I've kind of had a concern for many years when I enter into a, a church group and they have a lot of like buzzwords that frame their understanding of spiritual things and Christian sort of revival perhaps. Um, and these words don't have their root in scripture. Uh, not, not just the words, but rather the idea itself. You're going, is that idea even biblical? You know, like where's that idea coming from? But it seems core to their concept of revival. And so the concern here is that like releasing, I'm, under, I'm releasing over you this, I'm releasing over you that. This is a big buzzword for Brian's movement. But now it's in the scriptures. Now it's placed in the Bible. And, it, and it's earlier we talked, we said that the word itself isn't in Colossians 1-2. It's added by Brian Simmons. Now we're talking about not just the presence of a word, but the presence of a concept that's foreign to scripture being added. And that's a different thing altogether. And so you have a list of several examples of this kind of thing that you give there that we should be aware of. Um, it's hard to reform to sola scriptura, to what, back to the text, right? Back to the, the, what the scripture says when the scripture is being adapted to fit your sect, your particular group. Let's talk about basic grammatical errors. Now, you discovered several ba what you call basic grammatical errors. If you could just really quickly, just kind of like shotgun us through several examples of where Brian Simmons has made these, this goes towards his basic credibility as well um, as someone who should be trusted with handling being the, the lead translator of a whole Bible translation. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll mention briefly a couple, and I think uh, Dr. Bittner can talk just a, bit, a little bit about uh, grammatical skill in general and how that what, what we see being displayed in Simmons' translation. Great. But, uh, the thing is that when you start learning a language newly, freshly, at a basic level, a lot of what you will focus on is some some basic rules for how the language it works as a whole, and then at a, at a micro level, how sentences can be constructed, uh, how what phrases mean and what they do, and then of course what what words mean, and how they fit into sentences. And it just seems to me that some of these uh, basics uh, don't show up in the way in which uh, Simmons translates things. So uh, the first one I've got here is an example. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, uh, in, in Greek, the idea of how this uh, particular phrase works is that it explains what something is. So when it says uh, the word of truth, uh, it is namely meaning this word of truth that we're talking about is the gospel. It's explaining what that is. But he's, he makes it become an adjective uh, and says it's the truth of the gospel. Uh, rather, we're saying the truth that we're talking about is the gospel. Now, of course, we affirm the gospel is true. I'm just saying grammatically, uh, he is he changes it around. One of the examples that Alex points us to is in three nine, where uh, where Simmons has 
lay aside your old Adam self as an instruction. Um, and, and there's something also strange going on in the footnote there. He says, well, I translate from the Greek, the Aramaic actually has an imperative, but what he has given us in English is an imperative, it, it's a command. And what you, should, what you should see in a good translation just there is that we're being given the grounds by which we can stop speaking falsely, actually. That this is because you have, since you have put off the old man. This is something that points us to what God's already done for us in Christ as the basis that gives us the spiritual ability and power to do the command that precedes it. But by changing it, he's actually giving you a series of commands and I'd say he's, he's kind of stripped away the good news that empowers us to fulfill the commands that we have been given. And so, and your criticism here, if I understand it right, is he seems to, in the footnote, rightly acknowledge that it's, it's one way in the Greek, it's another way in the Aramaic. He says he's translating the Greek, but he translates it the Aramaic way. And, it's, well, and, it, and I, it makes it imperative instead of uh, a statement of fact. Yes, I think so. That he says he's got an Aramaic in front of an Aramaic something in front of him. I don't know what that is, yeah. um, or if there exists anything. But uh, he he says that's an imperative. But I'm looking at the Greek. Well, as I look at the Greek, it's not an imperative. What what it is instead, it, it should be translated in, in in a way that conveys the sense of because or since this is true. It's it's a participle actually. Uh, and we hardly ever have participles that act as imperatives, and certainly not this one in this context. So what you lose there, practically, is that all the commands that have been given in verse 7 and verse 8 uh, prior to that, uh, put away, put, put off these things, fits of rage, hatred, cursing, filthy speech, all the rest, those are meant to be understood as grounded in the fact that you can do this because you put off the old man when you were united to Christ by faith. And this is possible because of the work of Christ on your behalf. Instead, what we get from Simmons is just another thing to do. So it's up to you to lay aside the old Adam man, as I read him there. And that, I think, is a serious result of the mistranslation. Here. We've got now um, observation 19. And this one I thought was extremely helpful. This is about how, it, I'm going to put it in my words, and please correct them and just summarize this for the audience if you would. But I think this is about how Simmons has effectively erased the style of the biblical authors and kind of replaced it, overwritten it with his own style. So it's almost as though he's the author of all these letters. Could you unpack that or even disagree with me if I've overstepped it at all? Sure. Again, Dr. Bernal can speak a bit to uh, the nature of epistolary literature, these, the, how, what the Pauline letters are like. I would just say to give a clear example, uh, if if I write a, a birthday letter to my mother and, and mail it off uh, to the UK, she's going to open that and she is going to read She's going to know that I'm the person who wrote it because of the, the words that I use, the way I, I say things. There will be phrases that, are, that she can recognize and she's going to, my imprint is going to be on that letter. You know, we, I, we get this all the time with my wife, right? Because if I'm busy and she's texting from my phone, I give her the words to use because she just texts different and she'll add more smiley faces and stuff. And I'm like, no, just, she goes, just say, yep. That's the whole text. And I'm like, yes, that's the whole text. Just say, yep. And she would never do that. And so it's like, yeah, it's our, it's kind of our style of speaking. Yeah. Right. And if, if I called my friend over the phone and said, 
please write a birthday letter to my mother and mail it off. I mean, she's immediately going to recognize, hey, listen, although he's communicating this similar thing, happy birthday, and I love you, and so on, it is not coming from me, and it's not the words that I've written. It's, it's my friend's idea about what I had said, right? And I think that that is uh, conceptually what's going on going on here. Yeah. Once again, if we take, I mean, if we if we begin from the assumption that this is not just Paul's word, but it's God's word written through Paul, delivered through Paul by the Holy Spirit, then we also have to think about the fact that the Holy Spirit formed the Apostle Paul to be the person that he was from the time he was formed in the womb, from the time he was born, through his schooling, the way he learned to write Greek and use certain phrases in certain ways, and that the Holy Spirit formed him in just the right way that he wanted to form God used Paul as an instrument to take the gospel out to the nations and to write it down for us. God did not form Brian Simmons or any other Bible translator in that kind of special way because Brian Simmons is not an apostle like Paul is an apostle. Neither am I, neither is anybody who sits on a translation committee. And so what we lose is not just an interesting note of this is Paul's style or this is Simmons' style. We lose the Holy Spirit's Pauline style and what he wants to say clearly through Paul to us. And I think that's wow. for me the real issue. Yeah, wow. Wow. That's to me that's really eye opening. It's like what what is the some of the cumulative effect of all these changes across all these various books of the Bible? So let's talk a little bit about your conclusions now. Um, if you could just, in a short summary, give the average person, average Christian walks up to you, they say, hey, Alex, Dr. Bittner, I, I've got this passion translation. My, my friend gave it to me. I read some verses, my favorite verses in it. And it's just like, oh, it's really coming alive to me, you know? But I don't know. I heard some weird stuff online. There's this Mike Winger guy who seems to be a critic of this thing, but I don't know if he speaks, you know, the truth or not. So what would you say? What are your just your summary conclusions about the Passion Translation for everybody to hear. I think just pastorally, you'd want to say it is it is a really great thing to be excited by God's Word and excited about about growing in knowledge of it and enjoyment of it and loving God more, more thoroughly. That is, that is something that you never want to crush. But God has also given us the way in which that is best accomplished, and that's through His Word and by His Holy Spirit. Uh, that creates faith in our hearts when we hear the truth. And I think uh, Simmons has so radically altered uh, the text of Scripture that what you have is not Scripture in your hands. It contains scriptural truths. It contains uh, many of the ideas that the Bible communicates. But what you are holding in your hands it does not qualify as Scripture. Wow. Uh, Dr. Bittner? I if, if someone asked me what I thought about the Passion Translation and they were getting excited about it, uh, like Alex, I'd want to say, I'm so, so excited for you that you're opening up God's Word, that you want to read that, but what you have in your hands is not a good translation of God's Word. It's, a, it's passionate, it's poetic, but it's not a translation, and if you really want to hear God speaking to you, you need to put that down, and you, you need to go pick up any of another, a uh, number of other translations. And we can talk about great translations that are there, but that is not the one to be reading. If you want to hear clearly what it is that God has been saying to his people for 2,000 years and continues to say freshly to us, it's just not a good translation. Yeah. Now, 
in your opinion, gentlemen, do you think the Passion Translation should be on the shelves of stores, uh, Christian bookstores, or wherever? So I, I, I thought about this a little bit. I'm as a as an advocate of a an unregulated uh, market in the sale of, of goods and services. I think individual businesses should have the rights to sell what they choose to. If I was a bookstore or I, I think about a theological library or something, uh, absolutely not. Uh, it is it misrepresents what it is in, in a very material sense. And so, whilst a bookstore a bookstore might have it on its shelf, I really do not think that a Christian should have it on their shelf at home. Yeah, I, I like that as well. I mean, I don't really, I don't, I'm not looking at, I'm not a banned books kind of person, but when you group them together as here's a group of Bible translations, it seems like this shouldn't be on that shelf at least, you know, to call it like a translation, as you guys have made pretty clear. Um, now, here's a question I've received several times. I'd like to get your guys' thoughts on this, which is, um, could somebody become a Christian if the only Bible they have was the Passion Translation and, and they read it? Could it be used in leading people to Christ? Would it be a faithful guide to, to lead them to salvation? There are a lot of things that God can do in less than ideal circumstances. So I, would, I wouldn't want to preclude that. But I think if I can go back to an analogy I tried to make earlier, could, could my heart surgery be successful if my surgeon had only been using Gray's Anatomy or a very outdated and, and in need of updating kind of resource? I wouldn't want to trust myself to that. I really wouldn't. So uh, I, I'm not going to say God can't do miracles. He does them all the time in changing dead sinners into alive saints. But I don't think uh, I don't think this is a resource that I would want to give anybody's hands. And I, I really agree with that. I think God can, can do anything, accomplish anything that, that's according to His will. I, I would say though that. In reading the Passion Translation, and I've read large sections of it, not just Colossians, uh, in it you don't find any uh, claims like oh, denying the Trinity or uh, denying that Jesus uh, is the one in whom we must have faith and that we need salvation and, and so on. So there's certain elements which are true and can be used in sharing the gospel, but it is, it is so defaced as the scriptures that uh, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend in any way being used in evangelism or anything like that. Yeah, it it almost feels to me like the question, while valid, it leaves so much unsaid. It's kind of like saying, can an abusive parent still raise a physically healthy child? And you're like, well, yeah, they could, but we're sort of not talking about the important part here at this point. And it's the same thing, you know, it's like, could I survive if I eat out of the garbage? Well, yeah, you'll survive, but it's not like, it's not good. You don't want that. And so the Passion Translation may may well lead someone to the true gospel. Um, but but that's not the only function of Scripture. It's the whole revelation of God's Word. And so there's so much more there that we need. So, yeah, maybe as a follow-up to the last question, I'll ask this, that uh, what, you know, other than just uh, salvific questions, what effect do you suppose the Passion Translation might have on a person who reads it as their main Bible? I, I have to I have to say I've not read any more than Colossians uh, in the Passion Translation, but on the basis of Colossians alone, uh, I think they are going to get a less clear view of the wonderful, gracious work of 
God and Christ for us than they would in other translations. Uh, I think they're going to come away with a sense that uh, they need to work hard to receive this release and revelation that uh, we find in the, in the pages of the Passion Translation, rather than to hear that they need to grow in knowledge of Christ and thereby be filled with the fullness that God is pouring out into his church and into his people. So I think those are some practical shortcomings that people will run into if they depend on the Passion Translation. That's just speaking to Colossians. Yeah. And I think perhaps more more broadly as well, in taking into account what I've read across as a whole, is it's not just in Colossians where he's radically transforming what the scriptures say. So I would say that for that Christian, uh, that they aren't ultimately going to be confident that the Bible is their source of authority. In, in fact, it may end up being that in a lot of things that they read, Brian Simmons has become their ultimate authority, even though that would shock them. Uh, but that's the reality, because so much of what you're reading is from the hand of Brian Simmons instead of uh, from the mouth of God through his prophets and apostles. I'm Mike Winger, and my goal with all the free content I put up online is to help you learn how to think biblically about everything. But you really can't learn how to think biblically if the Bible you're reading represents the thinking of Brian Simmons and not the revelation and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you ever want to join me, I go live every week on Mondays and Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific time. I do Bible studies, I do apologetics, theology, and I do a Q&A. That's the Friday video, 1 p.m. And we do Q&A answering your questions from the live chat, giving you guys the best answers that I can come up with for your often very challenging questions. Take care.